The following is a conversation with Robert Cruz, a historian at Stanford, specializing in the history of Afghanistan, Russia, and Islam. And now a quick few second mention of each sponsor. Check them out in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. First is Mud Water, a delicious coffee alternative. Second is 10,000, clothes I like wearing for lifting cardio and grappling. Third is Four Sigmatic, maker of delicious mushroom coffee. Fourth is Magic Spoon, low-carb keto-friendly cereal. Fifth is Onnit, a nutrition, supplement, and fitness company. So the choice is food, drink, fashion, or health. Choose wisely, my friends. And now onto the full ad reads. As always, no ads in the middle. I try to make these interesting, but if you skip them, please still check out our sponsors. I enjoy their stuff. Maybe you will too. This show is brought to you by Mud Water, spelled M-U-D-W-T-R, a coffee alternative with one-seventh the caffeine as a cup of coffee and a ton of ingredients that are good for you. But I drink it because it's delicious. I use a frother with a little bit of their creamer that has MCT oil. And like I said, I have to admit that it really does taste like a treat. Uh, it has no sugar, but it tastes like... Uh, sweet and delicious and rich, like it would have sugar, but it has no sugar and uh, it doesn't have any of the sneaky sweeteners added. In terms of caffeine, it just has a little bit of kick, but not too much. If uh, caffeine has a really uh, strong effect on you, this is this is just perfect. I can drink it in the morning, I can drink it before bed, it's, it's just right. You can visit mudwater.com slash Lex to support the show and use Lex at checkout for $5 off. That's mudwater, again, spelled M-U-D-W-T-R dot com slash Lex and use code Lex. This show is also brought to you by 10,000, maker of high quality, well-fitting, comfortable training clothes. I wear their foundation shorts for lifting and cardio, and I wear their fight shorts for training jiu-jitsu and grappling. I've been dealing with uh, a few uh, small injuries here and there on my legs, so I had to take it easy with the training of uh, jiu-jitsu, and I've been uh, doing the Rogue Echo bike. So when I was wrestling, it was the assault bike that was the death of me. I mean, it really quickly puts your mind into a, into a place where uh, you want to quit, so it's a great mental test. And I wear the 10,000 shorts when I'm doing that. That's that's cardio. They feel great. The minimalist look, obviously, is the thing I love. Anyway, go to 10,000.cc and enter code LEX to receive 15, that's 15% off your purchase. That's 10,000.cc and enter code LEX. This show is also brought to you by Four Sigmatic, the maker of delicious mushroom coffee and plant-based protein. The coffee tastes delicious. It does not taste like mushrooms. It has uh, a good solid amount of caffeine. It's the first thing I drink in the morning to get my mind going. I uh, make that hot cup of coffee. I take it to the computer with the Kinesis keyboard and have Emacs opened up. I mean, it's uh, it's heaven. I sip the coffee and I'm ready to really go into a, a deep work session and really focus. And there's something about the coffee, obviously both the caffeine, but also the ritual of coffee that really takes my mind there. It's kind of funny how the small, seemingly insignificant rituals of life give so much uh, fulfillment. I think coffee in the morning is one of them for me. 
Anyway, get up to 40% off and free shipping on mushroom coffee bundles if you go to foursigmatic.com slash lex. That's foursigmatic.com slash lex. This episode is also brought to you by Magic Spoon, low-carb, keto-friendly cereal. It has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, only four net grams of carbs, and 140 calories in each serving. You can build your own box or get a variety pack with available flavors like cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, and cinnamon. They also are bringing back two flavors, cookies and cream, and maple waffle permanently. Anyway, Magic Spoon have a 100% happiness guarantee, so if you don't like it, they will refund it. There's something really uh, exciting about 100% happiness guarantee, but I think this has to do only with the cereal, not uh, broadly in terms of all the pursuits in life. Go to magicspoon.com slash Lex and use code Lex at checkout to save $5 off your order. That's magicspoon.com slash Lex and use code Lex. This episode is also brought to you by Onnit, nutrition, supplement, and fitness company. They make Alpha Brain, which is a nootropic, which helps support memory, mental speed, and focus. I use it as a boost when uh, I have a difficult thinking session coming up. So if I have a particular, usually it's a programming problem that I have to think through. And so what do I mean by thinking? I don't mean like sitting there and thinking about philosophical ideas. I mean, literally keeping designs and visualizations in your mind and you're playing with those ideas in your mind. That's what you need the mental energy for. And that's where Alpha Brain uh, really helps me clear the mind and maintain focus. Anyway, Onnit is having a Black Friday sale offering uh, big discounts up to 60% off on their top products, including 25% off supplements and 10% off fitness equipment. Sale ends on December 5th. Go to lexfriedman.com slash onnit. That's lexfriedman.com slash onnit. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast, and here is my conversation with Robert Cruz. Was it a mistake for the United States to invade Afghanistan in 2001, 20 years ago? Yes. As simple as yes, why was it a mistake? I'm an historian, so I say this with you know, some humility about what we can know. I think you know, I'd still like to know much more about what was going on in the White House you know, in the hours, days, weeks you know, after 9-11. But I think the George W. Bush administration acted in a state of panic. And I think they wanted to show a kind of toughness. They wanted to show some kind of resolve. You know, this was a horrific act that played out, you know, on everyone's television screens. And I think it was really a fundamentally a crisis of legitimacy within the White House, within the Oval Office. And I think they felt like they had to do something and something dramatic. I think they didn't really think through, you know, who they were fighting, you know, who the enemy was, what this geography had to do with 9-11. I think looking back at it, I mean, some of us, not to say I was, you know, clairvoyant or could see into the future, but I think many of us were, you know, from that morning, skeptical about the connections that people were drawing between Afghanistan as a state, as a place, and you know, the actions of Al Qaeda in Washington and New York and and Pennsylvania. So, as you watch the events of nine eleven, 
the things that our leaders were saying in the in the minutes, hours, mm -hmm. days, weeks that followed. Maybe you can give a little bit of a timeline and of what was being said. When was the actual invasion of, of Afghanistan? And also, what were your feelings in the minutes, weeks after 9-11? I was in DC. I was, you know, on the way to American University uh, hearing on NPR what had happened. Um, and I thought of the American University logo, which is red, white, and blue. <laughs> it's an eagle. And I thought, you know, Washington is under attack and symbols of American power are under attack. And so, um, you know, I, I was quite concerned and at the time lived, you know, just a few miles from the Capitol. And so, um, you know, I, I felt that, you know, it was, it was real. So I appreciate the, you know, the, the sense of anxiety and fear and panic. And for two, three years later in DC, we were constantly getting reports, you know, mostly rumors and unconfirmed about all kinds of attacks that befall the city. So I definitely um, appreciate the sense of being under assault. But in watching television, including Russian television that day, because I just I just installed a, a satellite thing. So I was trying to watch world news and get different points of view. And that was quite useful to have an alternative you know, set of eyes. In Russian? Yeah, in Russian, yeah. Okay, so your Russian is uh, is good enough to understand uh, Russian television. The news, yeah, the news and the visuals that were coming that were not shown on American television. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they had it, but they had they were not filtering anything in the way that the major networks and, and cable televisions were doing here. So it was a very unvarnished view of, of the violence of of the moment. You know, in New York City, of, of people diving from the towers or being, dis you know, and it was really they didn't hold back on that, which was quite you know, fascinating. I think much of the world saw much more than actually the American public saw. But to your question, you know, amid that feeling of imminent doom, I watched commentators start to talk about Al-Qaeda and then talk about Afghanistan. And one of the experts was um, was Barnett Rubin, um, who's at NYU, who's a, you know, kind of long, very learned um, Afghanistan hand. And he's brought on Peter Jennings on ABC News to, to kind of lay this out for everyone. Um, and I thought, you know, he did a fine job, but it, I think it it was formative in cementing the view that somehow Al-Qaeda was synonymous with the space Afghanistan. Um, and I think, again, I was no Al-Qaeda expert then, and I'm, I'm not now, but I think my immediate thought went to war. And because my background had been with, at that point, mostly Afghans who had been displaced from decades of war, whom I encountered in Uzbekistan, who were refugees and so on, I thought immediately, you know, my mind went to the suffering of Afghan people, that this war was going to sweep sweep up, of course, the the, you know, the defenseless people who have nothing to do with these politics. So we should give maybe a little bit of context yeah. that you could speak to. Yeah. So assume nobody's an expert at anything. Yeah. So let's just say yeah. uh, you're, you and I are not experts at anything. Right. What, as a historian, were you studying at the time and thinking about, see, uh, is it is it the full global history of Afghanistan? Is it the region? Were you thinking about uh, the Mujahideen and Al Qaeda and Taliban? Were you thinking about the Soviet Union, the proxy war through Afghanistan? Were you thinking about Iraq and oil? Like what? What's yeah. the full space of things in your heart, in your mind at the time? I mean, just at the moment, of course, it was you know that's the the sense of you know, the suffering and the tragedy of the moment of, you know, the, the deaths. And that was, I think, I was preoccupied by by the violence of the moment. Um, but as the conversation turned to Afghanistan as a kind of theater to somehow respond to this moment, I think immediately what came to mind was that the little I knew about Al-Qaeda at the time suggested that the 
the geography was was inaccurate that this was a, a global network a global threat that this was a kind of you know a movement that went beyond borders and i think the it felt early on that afghanistan was going to be used as, as a scapegoat and just intellectually at the time you know i was teaching at american university my courses you know touched on a range of subjects but i was trying to complete a book on um islam and the russian empire actually mm-hmm. But in doing that research, which took me across Russia and Central Asia, purely by accident, I had developed an interest in Afghanistan because uh, just, again, a series of coincidences, I found myself in Tashkent, the capital of Uzbekistan, without housing, through an American friend who was like the king of the market in Tashkent. He knew everyone. He ran into some Afghan merchants there. They found out I didn't have a place to live. I didn't know where Afghanistan was, honestly. This was 1997. I had a vague idea it was next door. Well, you lived in Uzbekistan? Yeah, in Tashkent, doing doing dissertation research. Yeah. Because okay. it was, you know, hub of the Russian Empire in Central Asia. Yeah. So just by accident, I ended up with these young Afghans who took me in as roommates. And that, I think, that the sense of that community shaped my idea of, of what Afghanistan is. It was my first exposure to them. They were a, part of a, a trading diaspora. They brought they had brought matches from Riga, Latvia. They had somehow brought um, flour and some agricultural products from from Egypt, and they were sitting in in closed containers in Tashkent, waiting for the Uzbekistani state to permit them to trade. So these guys are mostly hanging out during the day. They would get dressed up, they would put on suits and ties like you're wearing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they polish their shoes, and they would sit around offices, drink tea, pistachios. Then they had feast at lunch, um, and then at night we would go out. So part of my research, because I also had a bottleneck in my research, I was going to the state archives in Tashkent, mm-hmm. and because of the state of Uzbekistan, you know, that was a very kind of suspicious thing to do. So it took a while to get in. So I had downtime in Tashkent, just like these guys. So I got to know them pretty well, and it was really just a, a an accidental kind of thing, but grew quite close to them, and I developed an appreciation of... Um, which now I think, again, thinking of the seeds of all this, um, these people had already lived, young guys, you know, in their 20s, they'd already lived in six or seven countries. They all spoke half a dozen languages. Uh, one of my best friends there had been a, um, a kickboxer uh, and break dancer, trained in Tehran. His father was a theater person in Afghanistan. Um, he told stories of escaping death in Afghanistan during the Civil War, going to Uzbekistan, escaping death there. Um, and these were very, you know, real stories. Can you also yeah. uh, just briefly mention, yeah. uh, geographically speaking, yes, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan. You mentioned Iran, right? What? Uh, who are the neighbors of all of this? What, what are we supposed to be thinking about for people? I I was always terrible at geography and spatial information. So can you lay it out? Yeah, yeah. Like, no, sure, sure. So Tashkent, you know, is a is the capital of Uzbekistan. It, it was um, a hub of. Russian imperial power in the 19th century. The Russians take the city from a local kind of Muslim dynasty in 1865. It becomes the city, the, the kind of hub of um, Soviet power in Central Asia after 1917. It becomes the center of the Soviet Republic of Uzbekistan, which becomes independent finally in 1991 when the Soviet Union collapses. So the, these are yeah. all like these uh, republics are the fingertips of Soviet power That's in right. Central Asia. That's right. And they've been independent since 1991, but they have struggled to disentangle themselves from Moscow, from one another. And now they face very serious pressure from China to form a kind of periphery of you know, 
the great machine that is the Chinese economy and its ambitions to stretch across Asia. Um, for Afghanistan, where my roommates, my friends hailed from, um, yeah, Afghanistan had fallen into civil war in the late 1970s when leftists tried to seize power there in 1978. The Soviet Union then extended from Uzbekistan, you know, crossing the border with its forces in 1979 to try to shore up this leftist government that had seized power in, in 1978. Um, and so for Central Asians in the wider region, you know, their, their fate had for some decades been tied to, to Afghanistan in, in a variety of ways, but it became much more connected in the 1980s when the Soviet Red Army occupied um, Afghanistan for 10 years. And here I refer your listeners and viewers to um, Rambo 3 as the guide to... The historically accurate the historically guide. Accurate, the historically the accurate, the Bible, of, the Bible yes. of Afghan history in Rambo 3, yeah. yeah. As, as a, a fantastic um, window onto the American view of the war, right? Mm -hmm. But for most Afghans, you know, there are people who fought against the Soviet army, um, but of a certain generation... The guys I knew, you know, their mission was to survive. And so they fled in waves, you know, by the millions to Pakistan, to Iran. Some went north into Soviet Central Asia later in the 1990s. Um, and some were displaced across the planet. So California, where we're sitting today, has a large community that came in the 80s and 90s in the East Bay. Um, Can I ask a quick yeah. question that's a little bit of a tangent? Yeah. What is the correct or the respectful way to pronounce Afghanistan, Afghanistan, Iran, Iran? So, as a Russian speaker, Afghanistan. Yeah. yeah. Or the an versus the an. Yeah. Is it a different country by country? As an English speaker yeah. in America, yeah. is it pretentious and disrespectful to say Afghanistan? Mm. Or is it the opposite, respectful to say it that way? What, what are your thoughts on that? That's this? a fascinating question. Um, I defer to the people from those countries to, of course, sort out those politics. I think, you know, I think one of the fascinating things about this, the region broadly is that it is a place of so many cultures and, and it's really quite cosmopolitan. So I think people are mostly quite forgiving about how you say <laughs> Afghanistan, Afghanistan. So it's not like Paris. Yeah, yeah, right, right. The I French mean, are not forgiving. Yeah. No, no, no. I, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I think people are very, very forgiving. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Iranians are a bit, you know, more instructive in yeah. suggesting Iran rather than Iran, right? Mm -hmm. Iraq, Iraq. You know, I, I, I think there's, there's, there's come to be a fit between certain ways of pronouncing these places and the position that Americans take about them, right? So it's more jarring when people say, Iraq, and it yeah. comes with, you know, a, a claim that a certain kind of person, you know, should be the victim of violence or, yeah, right. So does that, yeah. It's kind of like uh, yeah. talking about the Democratic Party or the Democrat Party. It's uh, sometimes yeah. using certain kind of terminology to make a little bit of a sort of a implied statement about your beliefs. That's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I think when I hear Iraq and Iran, I mean, I think it, yeah, is it intentional in the case of a Democrat, or is it just a you know, innocent whatever? I think again, I think most Iranians and Afghans people I know have, have been very cool about that. What annoys Afghans now, I can say, I think it's fair to say, I, I don't mean to speak for mainstream people, entire group of people, but I can just share with our our non-Afghan friends um, the term Afghani uh, is is a kind of term of offense because that's the name of the currency, and so lots of people ask, you know, why. 
having, especially again, it's more directed at Americans because you know we've been so deeply involved in that country, obviously for the last twenty years, right? So Afghans ask why after twenty years are you still calling us the wrong name? What Af- is the right name? Just or somebody they, they, they prefer Afghans. Afghans. Yeah, and and Af- Afghani is the name of the currency, and so. I just dodged the bullet because I was going to say cool. Afghanis. No, no, no. Yeah, I'm, I hear you. That's no, no. really great to know. Yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's and again, I think, but I would emphasize that people are quite open and, and you know, it, it's a it's a whole region of incredible diversity and and respect for linguistic pluralism, actually. So I think that, you know, but I also appreciate that during the, in this context, um, when there's a lot of pain, you know, in the Afghan diaspora community in particular, you know, being called the wrong name after 20 years when they already feel so betrayed at this moment, you know, just kind of, I, I, if one follows this on social media, that is one kind of um, hot wire, right? Yeah, so the reason I ask about pronunciation is because, yes, it is true that there are certain things when mispronounced kind of reveal that you don't care enough to pronounce correctly, right. you don't know enough to pronounce correctly, right. Right. and you dismiss the culture and the people, which I think, That's right. as per your writing, is something that, if it's okay, I'll go with Afghanistan, yeah. just because I'm used to it. I say Iraq, yeah. Iran, but I say Afghanistan. Yeah, it's great. It's, as you do in your writing, uh, Afghanistan suffers from much misunderstanding from the rest of the world. But back yeah. to our discussion of Uzbekistan, yeah. Tajikistan, the whole region that gives us context for the events of 9-11. Right, right. So yeah, if we go back to that day and the weeks you know, that, that followed, um, in my mind went to the community I knew in Tashkent, um, which was interesting. It was, I mean, they were, so Islam was the focal point of our conversation in the US about 9-11, right? Everyone wanted to know what was the relationship between this horrific violence and that religious tradition with its, you know, 1 billion plus followers across the globe, right? That became the issue, of course, for American security institutions, for you know, local, state, and police institutions, right? I mean, it became the, I think it was the question that most Americans had on their mind. So again, I didn't imagine myself as someone who had all the answers, of course, but given my background and, and coming at this from Russian history, coming at this from studying empire and trying to think about the region broadly, you know, I was very alarmed at the way that the conversation went. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. What was your feeling on that morning uh, of 9-11, who did this? Isn't that, isn't that a natural feeling? There's a, uh, it's coupled with fear yeah. of what's next, especially when you're in DC, right. yeah. but also who is this? Is this an accident? Yeah. Is this a deliberate terrorist attack? Is this uh, domestic? Like, yeah. What were your thoughts of the options and the internal ranking given your um, expertise? Yeah. I mean, I suppose I, I was taken by the narrative that this was international. I mean, I, I'd also lived in New York during one of the first bombings in 94 of the World Trade Center. So it was clear to me that a radical community had really fixed New York as part of their imagination of, and I, I immediately you know, thought it was a it was a, a kind of blow to American power. And you know, I was drawn in by the symbolism of, of it. You know, if you think of it as an act, it was a kind of um, an act of speech, if you will, a kind of uh, a way of speaking to, from a position of relative weakness, speaking to a, you know a, an imperial power, and that I saw, I saw it as a kind of symbolic you know speech act of of that with horrific you know real world um, consequences for all those innocent victims, for the firemen, for the police, and just a 
you know, the horror of the moment. Um, so I, I, I did see it as, as transcending the United States, but I did not see it as really having anything necessarily to do fundamentally about Afghanistan and the history of the region that I've been studying and the community people that I knew who were not particularly religious, right? That the, the guys I hung out with actually wore me out because they wanted to go out every night. They wanted to party every night. We had drinking. Yep. We had discussions about alcohol. I mean, Uzbekistan is famous for its you drinking. Know, it's drinking. You know, it's That's and, something to look forward to. So I, I do want to yeah. travel to that part of the world. When, when yeah. was the last time you were in that part of the world? Early 2000s. Well, then mid 2000s, uh, yeah. 2010s. So yeah. wait, so yeah. uh, by the way, we're drinking vodka. Yeah. What, what's the, per, yeah, what's I mean, the, the weapon the, of choice? Uzbekistan has incorporated vodka as as the um, the choice. Um, <laughs> and that, and it, uh, it, it informs, yeah. you know, and it's, but but the, the fascinating thing, you know, and as a student is what you're observing as a non-Muslim, you know, I'm a, I'm a non-Russian. I'm, this is all, you know, culturally new to me. And I'm, you know, a student of all that, right? As a graduate student doing my work mm-hmm. there. So you're like the um, Jane Goodall of vodka in, in Russia. That's you're right. Just observing. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then, then you you get the you get the samagon, the grass vodka. You get you know I have, I've had some long nights on the Kazakhstani frontier yeah. that I'm not proud of. Um, <laughs> you know, but you so, got to know yeah. the people and some of them from 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 yeah, yeah. But but intellectually, so the, so the thing. I mean, the 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 fascinating thing there was that, and just as a, I mean, there, there, there's a whole yeah. I'm a historian, right? But there there are great contributions by you know anthropologists and ethnographers who who've gone across the planet and tried to understand how muslims understand the tradition a different context so many uzbeks will say you know um this is part of our national culture to drink and eat as we please right and yet i'm a very devout muslim and so of course you can encounter other muslim communities who won't touch alcohol right mm-hmm. but it's become kind of i think it's very much um you know, Soviet culture left a, a deep impression in each of these places. And so there are ways of thinking, ways of, of performing, ways of you know, enjoying oneself that are shared across Soviet and former Soviet space to this day, right? And you've written also about Muslims in the Soviet Union. That's right. Uh, the, there's an article that uh, there was a paywall, so I couldn't read it. Oh, and okay. I really want to read it. Is, uh, Happy to share it with you, yeah. Uh, Moscow and the mosque are... Yeah. Something like that. Right, right. Um, by the way, just another tangent on a tangent. Yeah. Uh, so I bought all your books. I uh, love them very thank much. You, thank you. One of the reasons I bought them and read many parts is uh, because they're easy to buy. Unlike articles, okay. every single okay. website has a paywall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's very, I hear very, you. I'm sorry. very yeah, yeah. frustrating yeah. to read brilliant scholars such as yourself. No, no, no. Um, I wish there was one fee I could pay everywhere. I don't care what that fee is, right, where right. it gives, allows me to read some of yeah. your brilliant writing. No, no, thank you. I hear you. No, I think moving toward more kind of open source yeah. formatting stuff, I think is what a lot of journals are, are thinking about now. And I think it's definitely for the kind of democratization of knowledge and scholarship, that's definitely an important thing that we should all think about. And I think... Um, you know, we need to exert pressure on these publishers to to do that. So and I this, appreciate this that. This is what I'm doing here. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Appreciate so, uh, yeah. so your thought was Afghanistan is not it's not going to be the center, the exactly. source of exactly. where it's not the center of this. And invading that country isn't going to fix isn't going to fix the you know toxic maelstrom of politics that produced 9/11. Right. I think just thinking of some of the personalities, just thinking about. Going back to the, the Tashkent story, which I'll end with, I mean, just observing, you know, 
real Muslims doing doing things and then asking questions about it and and trying to understand through their eyes what the tradition means to them. And then you know you have a we had we had a very narrow conversation about what Islam is that you know generated immediately exploded in you know on the day of 9/11, right? Um and then of course um I think the antipathy toward Islam and Muslims you know was informed by by racism, informed by xenophobia. So it became a perfect storm I think of of demonization that didn't sit with you know what I knew about the tradition and with the actual people that I had known. Because then going back to, I mean, there are other friends and encounters and so on, but just thinking about Afghanistan and, and Tashkent for a moment, I mean, just the, the, the thought about my friends who had been, who had suffered a great deal in their short lives, who had been, you know, cast aside from country to country, but had found a place in, in Tashkent with some relative stability. And, you know, they wanted to go out every night. And, you know, they explained, you know, one friend, we, we talked about it with the alcohol and all that. And he, he didn't get crazy, but he was like, you can drink, but just don't get drunk. That's, that's permissible within Islam, right? Um, and he was, you know, ethnic Pashtun. I think Uzbeks had a different view, you know, often the more vodka, the better, you know, mm-hmm. and it doesn't violate, as I understand Islam. So even, you know, it's, it's kind of a silly example, but it's just an illustration of the ways in which different communities different generations, different people could come at, at this very complex, rich tradition in so many different ways. So obviously, if whatever kind of scholar you are, any kind of expert, whatever, you you know, it's always disconcerting to see your field of specialization be flattened, right? And then be flattened and then be turned to arguments for, for violence. Right? And mixed up with uh, natural human right. feelings of hate. Yeah. And, right. uh, and hurt. Depression. And, and pain. So I, yeah. you know, I mean, that day I vividly remember I sat with um, other PhD historians in different fields. We, you know, we oddly enough had lunch that day in a kind of deserted Washington. Some place was open. We went um, and we just thought, you know, this is going to kind of open up like a great mall of destruction. And, you know, the American state is going to destroy and it's going to destroy in this geography. And I thought that was misplaced for lots of reasons and then i think if one you know i'd been doing some research on afghanistan then i was kind of shifting to the south and i'd been looking at the taliban um from afar for some years and you know i think it's clear now that in respect there were opportunities for alternative policies at that moment so what should the conversation have been like yeah. what should we have done differently because yeah. You know, from a perspective yeah. of the time, the United States was invaded by a, yeah. a foreign force. What is the proper response yeah. or what is the proper conversation about the proper response right. at the time, right. you think? You know, I know my colleague at Stanford, Condoleezza Rice, would tell me this is above my pay grade. And, um, you know, she makes a point in her classes to talk about how difficult decision making is under such intense pressure. And I appreciate that. Um, you know, I am an historian who sits safely in my office. I don't like battlefields. I don't like taking risks. Um, so I can see all those limits. You know, I'm not a military expert. I've been accused of being a spy <laughs> wherever I've gone because of the way I look and because of my nationality and so on, but I'm not a spy. So I defer, you know, I respect the expertise of, of all those communities, but I think they acted out of ignorance. They acted, I think, because, I mean, if you think of the, in a way there was a compensatory aspect of this decision-making. I mean, the Bush administration failed. This was an extraordinary failure. 
right? So if we in start which way, if we can we break down the theory of intelligence, I mean, if they, you know, if you follow the story of Richard Clark, um, who's Richard Clark? He was a national security expert who was tasked with following Al Qaeda, who had uh, produced a dossier under the Clinton administration that he passed on to the George W. Bush administration. And if you look at the work of Condoleezza Rice, she wrote a very famous, I think, unpaywalled uh, foreign affairs article that you can read <laughs> announcing the George W. Bush foreign policy kind of outlook. Um, and it was all about great powers. It's about the rise of China. It's about Russia. I mean, there's definitely a kind of hangover of those who missed having Russia as the boogeyman who spoke, you know, the Clinton administration repeated again and again the idea of making sure the bear stayed in his cage, um, which is why the United States threw a lifeline to the Central Asian states, hoping to have pipelines, hoping to shore up their national sovereignty as a way of containing Russia initially, uh, but also Iran, you know, which sits to the south and, and west, mm -hmm. and then peripherally looking down the road to China, to the east. So the the bear is what, like Russia, or is, is it kind of like some weird combination of Russia, Iran, and China? No, the, the bear is Russia, and, and Russia is this, um, I think I'm, I'm trying to characterize the imagination of some of these yeah. national security figures. Um, this is an image formed in the Cold War. I mean, it has deeper seeds in European and Western intellectual thought that go back at least to the 1850s in the reign of Tsar Nicholas I, when we first get this language about um, the Russian Empire as this kind of evil uh, polity. Obviously, this was a, a, a kind of pillar of Reaganism. Um, but the Clinton folks kept that al alive. They wanted to make sure that you know American power would be you know, unmatched. And they, being creatures of the Cold War themselves, they looked to Russia as a resurgent power well before Putin was even thought of. Yeah, right? I mean, this yeah. is, you mentioned one yeah. deep, uh, profound historical piece in Rambo. It's probably uh, the this this conflict has to do with another Celeste Stallone movie, Iraqi Four, which is also historically accurate and right. based on, yeah. uh, it's basically a documentary. So um, there, there is yeah. something about the American power, even at the level of Condoleezza Rice, these respected, uh, deep kind of uh, leaders and thinkers yeah. about history in the future, where they like to have competition with other superpowers right. and almost uh, conjure up superpowers, even when those countries don't maybe, at the time at least, deserve the label of superpower. That's right, great point. Yeah, they're all, all excellent points. So. Yeah, I mean, Russia was, I think, many, many exports. I mean, my my mentor at Princeton, um, Stephen Kotkin, you know, was then writing great things about how, you know, if you look at Russia's economy, the scale of its GDP, you know, its capacity to actually act globally, it's all quite limited. Um, but Condi Rice and the people around her, you know, came into power with George W. Bush thinking that, you know, the foreign policy challenges of her era would be those of the past, Right. Richard Clark and others within the administration warned that, in fact, there is this group that has declared war against the United States, and they are coming for us. The FBI had been following these people around for many months. And so, you know, by the time George W. Bush comes to power, lots of Al-Qaeda activists are, well, not lots, but, you know, a, a, perhaps a dozen or so, are already, you know, training in the United States, right? 
Um, and what we knew immediately from the biographies of some of the characters of the attackers of 9-11, it was a hodgepodge of people from across the planet, but mostly they were Saudi, right? And that was known very early on or, or presumed very early on. So again, if we go back to your big question about the geography, why Afghanistan, it, it didn't add up, right? It seemed to me that Afghanistan was a kind of soft target. It was a place to have explosions, to seemingly recapture American supremacy. Um, and also I think, you know, there was in many quarters, there was a, a deep urge for revenge. And this was a place to have some casualties, have some explosions. And then I think, you know, restore the legitimacy of the Bush administration by showing that we are in charge, we'll pay. And I think there was a very old fashioned punitive dimension, which rests upon the presumption that if we intimidate these people, they'll know not to try this again, right? Mm-hmm. All these, I would suggest, are all misreadings of a of an organization that was always global. It had no real center. I mean, it called itself the center. That's one way to, to translate Al-Qaeda. But that center was really yeah. in the imagination. Um, Bin Laden bounced around from country to country. Um, and crucially, I think uh, a dimension that I don't claim to know anything new about, but has endured as a kind of doubt, is the role of Saudi Arabia and the fact that you know the muscle in that operation of 9-11 was, was Saudi, right? I mean, this was a, a Saudi operation with if one thinks, again, just on the basis of nationalities, Saudis, you know, an Egyptian or two, a Lebanese guy. And the Egyptian guy, you know, had been studying in Germany. He was an urban planner, right? Um, so if one thinks of the imagination of this, I mean, and in fact, if you look at the, the kind of typology of the figures who have led this radical movement, I mean, if you think of the, the global jihadists, they are mostly not religious scholars, right? Bin Laden was not a religious scholar. His training was an engineer. You know, some biographers claim that he was a playboy for much of his youth. But really, the, 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 these ideas, and I think that's probably why they chose the Twin Towers. I mean, this is uh, an imagination fueled by training in engineering. I mean, a lot of the, you know, the, the sociology, if you do a kind of prosopography of, of a lot of these leading um, jihadists, their backgrounds are not in Islamic scholarship, but actually in engineering and kind of practical sciences and, and professions medical doctors are, are among their ranks. Um, and so there's long been a tension between Islamic scholars who devote their whole lives to study of texts and commentary and interpretation. And then what some scholars call kind of new intellectuals, new Muslim authorities who actually have secular university educations, often in the natural sciences or engineering and technical fields, who then bring that kind of mindset, if you will, to what Muslim scholars call the religious sciences, which are, you know, a field of kind of ambiguity and of gradation and of subtlety and nuance and really of decades of training before one becomes authoritative to speak about issues like whether or not it's legitimate to take someone else's life. With the relation to Afghanistan, who was Bin Laden? Bin Laden was a a visitor. Um, If we look at his whole life course, part of it is an enigma still. You know, he is from a Saudi elite family, but a family that kind of has a, a Yemeni, Arabian Sea kind of genealogy. Um, so the family has no relationship to Afghanistan, past or present, except at some point in the 1980s when he went, like thousands of other young Saudis, first to Pakistan, to places like Peshawar on the border, where they wanted to aid the jihad in some capacity. And for the most part, the Arabs who went 
opened up hospitals, some opened up schools. The Bin Laden family had long been based in engineering, construction. So it's thought that he used some of those skills and resources and connections to build things. Um, you know, we have images of him firing a gun uh, for show, right? It's not clear that he ever actually fired a gun in what we would call combat. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I could be corrected by this. And I think, you know, they're, com- they're competing accounts of who he was. So he's kind of a, I mean, many of these figures that who, who sit at the pinnacle of this world are, you know, fictive heroes that mm-hmm. people, you know, map their aspirations onto, right? And so people like Mullah Omar, who was then head of the Taliban, was rarely seen in public. The current head of the Taliban is almost never seen in public. I mean, there's a kind of studied air of um, mystery that they've cultivated to make themselves available for all kinds of fantasies, right? Do you think he believed, so his religious beliefs, do you think he believed some of the more extreme things that enable him to commit terrorist acts? Maybe put another way, what makes a man want to become a terrorist? And what yeah. aspect of bin Laden made him want to be a terrorist? Great. Great. Um, I mean, let me offer some observations. Uh, I think you know there are others who know more about bin Laden and and have far more expertise in, in Al-Qaeda. So I'm coming to this in an adjacent way, kind of from Afghanistan and from my historical training. So this is my two cents. So, you know, mm-hmm. bear with me. Um, I'm, I don't have the authoritative account. Which, which this, in but... itself is fascinating because you're a historian of Afghanistan. And the fact that bin Laden isn't a huge part of your focus of study just means that mm. bin Laden is not a key part of the history of Afghanistan, except that America made him a key part of the history of Afghanistan. I, I would endorse that. Definitely. That's yeah. it. I mean, you you put it in a very pithy, pithy way. Um, yeah. So listen, he was, he was a, so he was an engineer. He was said to be a playboy um, who spent a lot of cash from his family. You know, like many young Saudis and from some other countries, he was inspired by this idea that there was jihad in Afghanistan. It was going to take down one of the two superpowers, the Soviet Union, who, you know, the Red Army did murder hundreds of thousands, perhaps as many as 2 million um, Afghan civilians during that conflict. It's very, you know, plausible and very, you know, completely understandable that many young people would see that cause as, you know, the righteous, pious fighters for jihad, who call themselves mujahideen, arrayed against this, evil empire, right, of a godless Soviet empire that, I mean, there's even confusion about what the Soviets wanted, right? Now, now we know much more about like what the Kremlin wanted, what, what Brezhnev wanted, and how the Soviet elite thought about it because we have many more of their records. But from the outside, you know, for Jimmy Carter and then for Reagan, it looked like the Soviets were making a move on on South Asia because they wanted to get to the warm water ports, you know, which Russians always want supposedly, right? And it was kind of a... a a move to take over our oil and, you know, to assert world domination, right? So there are lots of ways in which this looked like good versus evil. In Congress, it looked like, um, you know, kind of Vietnam again, but this time this is our chance to get them. And there are lots of great quotes, uh, I mean, disturbing, but really revealing quotes that uh, American policymakers made about wanting to give the Soviets their Vietnam. So the CIA funneled, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars into this project to, to back the Mujahideen, you know, who Reagan called freedom fighters. 
And so Bin Laden was part of that universe. He's part of that, you know, he's swimming in the ocean of these Afghan Mujahideen who I would emphasize, you know, did 95% of the fighting. They're the ones who died. They're the ones who defeated the Red Army, right? The Arabs who were there did a little fighting, but a lot of it was for, you know, their purposes. It was to get experience. It was to kind of create their reputations, like Bin Laden began to forge for himself, of being spokesman for a global project. Because by the late 80s, when Bin Laden, I think, was, was more active and began conspiring with people from other Arab countries, the idea that, you know, Gorbachev came to power in 85, he's like, let's get out of here. This is this is draining the Soviet budget. It's an embarrassment. Uh, we didn't think about this properly. Let's focus on restoring um, the party and strengthening the Soviet Union. Let's get out of this costly war. You know, it's 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 a waste. Um, it's not worth it. We don't lose anything by getting out of Afghanistan. Um, and so their, their retreat was quite uh, effective and successful from the Soviet point of view, right? It's not what we're seeing now. Um, uh, what year was the retreat? Um, I mean, it began... So Mikhail Gorbachev came to power in 1985. You know, he was a generation younger than the other guys. He was a critic of the system. He didn't want to abolish it. He wanted to reform it. He was a, a true believer in, in Soviet socialism and in the, and in the party as a, a, you know, a monopolist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he's critical of the old guard and recognized that the party had to change and the whole system had to change to continue to compete. And so Afghanistan was one element of this. And so he pushed the Afghan elites that Moscow was backing to basically say, listen, we're going to share power. Um, and so a figure named Najibullah, who was a Soviet-trained intelligence specialist sitting in Kabul, um, agreed. And he said, you, we need to have a more kind of pluralistic accommodationist approach to our enemies who are backed by the U.S. mainly, sitting in Pakistan, sitting in Iran, backed by these Arabs to a degree, getting money from Saudi. And he said, let's draw some of them into the government and basically have a, a kind of unity government mm-hmm. that would make some space to the opposition. And for the most part, with U.S. backing, with Pakistani backing, with Iranian backing, and with Saudi backing, the opposition said, no, we're not going to reconcile. We're going to push you off the cliff. And so that story goes on from at least 1987 the last Soviet Red Army troops leave early 1989. Um, but the government holds on for three more years. It, it is the, um, I mean, they're still getting some help from the Soviet Union. Its enemies are still getting help from the U.S. mainly. And um, it's not until 1992 that, that, um, that they lose. And then Mujahideen, Mujahideen come to power. They immediately, you know, they're deeply fractured. And that's and, where Bin Laden is watching all of this unroll. That's right, and he's he's part of the mix, but he's also mobile. So he got, he at one point, you know, goes, um, you know, is in Sudan. You know, he's right. he's moving from place to place. His people are all over the world. In fact, they, I mean, if you think of the once the Mujahideen take power, you know, they they have difficulties with the Arab fighters too, and they don't want them coming in and you know messing with the Mujahideen. Mujahideen regard this as like you know this is an Afghan national state that we're going to build. It's going to be Islamic. It's going to be an Islamic state, but you can't interfere with us. And so there are always tensions. And so the Arabs are always kind of, I would say they were, the Arab fighters were always interlopers. Um, yes, the Afghans are happy to take their money, send patients to their hospitals, um, take their weapons, but they're never going to let this be like a Saudi or Egyptian or, or whatever project. Mm-hmm. Um, but then many of those fighters went home. They went back to Syria. 
They went back to Egypt. Some wanted to go back to the Saudi Arabia, but the Saudis were very careful. I mean, the Saudis always used Afghanistan as a kind of safety valve. In fact, they had you know fundraisers on television. They chartered jets. They filled them with people to fly to Pakistan, um, get out in Peshawar and say, you know, go fight. And it was one way that the, the monarchy, the Saudi monarchy, um, very cleverly, I think, created a, a kind of escape valve for would-be dissidents in Saudi Arabia, right? Just send them abroad. You want to fight jihad? Go do that somewhere else. Don't don't bother the kingdom. But all this became dicier um, in the early '90s when some of these guys came back home, and some of the scholars around them said, you know, let's we've defeated the Soviet Union, which is a huge huge boost. And I think mm-hmm. part of the dynamic we see today is that the Taliban victory is a, a renewed inspiration for people who think, look, we beat the Soviets, now we beat the Americans, mm-hmm. and so already watching the Soviet retreat across this bridge back into Uzbekistan, if you see these dramatic images of the, the tanks, you know, moving, a lot of people interpreted this as like, you know, we are going to change the world. And now we're turning to the Americans and our, our local national governments are backed by the Americans. So let's start with the, start with those places. And then let's go strike, let's go strike, you know, the belly of the beast, which is America, which is New York. And going back to Bin Laden, your question about, you know, what motivates him, what motivated him? You know, again, he was not a, rigorously trained Islamic scholar. And that I think, you know, when I when this when this comes up in our classes, you know, I think especially young people, I mean people who weren't even born when I live, I mean they're they're shocked. They they see they see his appearance. They see him pictured in front of a, a giant bookshelf of mm-hmm. Arabic books. He's got the Kalashnikov. He's got what looks like a religious scholar's library behind him, right? But if you look at his words, I mean one fascinating thing about just our politics and just one thing that kind of sums all this up, I mean the fact that on 9-11, we had to have a few people, a few experts, people like Bernard Rubin, who was an Afghanistan expert. So that was one way in which I think, you know, I'm not faulting him personally, but it's just one way in which that relationship appeared to be, you know, formed, right, of linking Afghanistan to that moment. Um, if one looks actually, you know, at what bin Laden was saying and doing, people like Richard Clark were studying this. There were Arab leaders. The Arab press was was watching this because he gave some of his first interviews to uh, a few Arab newspaper outlets. But speaking of our American kind of you know monolingualism, a lot of what he was saying wasn't known. And so I think mm-hmm. for several years, people weren't reading what Bin Laden said. I mean, experts are reading reading it in Arabic, but there was great anxiety around translating his works. So you know we have Mein Kampf, we have all this other stuff you can buy. They collected works of Lenin, Stalin, Mao, whatever you want, in whatever language you want. But Bin Laden was taboo for American publishing. And so it was only uh, Verso in the UK that published a, a famous volume called Messages to the World, which was the first compendium, compendium of, of Bin Laden's writings. So he has a Mein Kampf. He has a type. Does he have a thing? Where I mean, it's a kind was... of collected works. It's a collected works. Okay. Uh, so of he, his, he, yeah. had, he had, well, like a... Like a blog, <laughs> like yeah, a, yeah. it's a yeah. co- collection of articles versus yeah. These are interviews. These are right. his his missives, his his declarations, his um, his decrees. Right. Um. It would, but I think just in terms of you know, if, if we zoom out for a second about you know American policy choices and so on, the powers that be didn't trust us to know what he was really about. I, I put it that way, and I don't say that in a conspiratorial sense. I just think that it was, you know, it, it was a, a a taboo. I think people, yeah. you know. There was, there was a kind of consensus that, um, you know, trust us. We know we know how to fight Al Qaeda, right. and you don't need to know what they're about because they're they're crazy. They're they're fanatics. They're fundamentalists. They hate us. Remember that language? Yeah. 
uh, it's it, us versus them. But if you read Bin Laden, that's when it gets messy. That's where the Bin Laden's argumentation is not fundamentally about Islam. And if you, you're sitting here with an Islamic scholar, he would say, you know, depending on which Islamic scholar, they would tend to go through and dissect and negate, you know, 99% of the arguments that Bin Laden claimed was in Islam, right? But what strikes me as an historian who's, again, looking at this adjacently, um, if you read Bin Laden, I mean, the arguments that you make are, first of all, they're sophisticated. They reflect a, a mind that is about geopolitics. He uses terms like imperialism. He knows something about world history. He knows something about geography. So imperialism is the enemy for him, or what's the nature of the enemy? It's a, it's a, it's an amalgam, and he, like a good politician, which is what I would call him, he is adept at speaking in different ways to different audiences. So if you look at the context in which he speaks, if you look at messages to the world, if you look at his writings, and it, you can zoom out now, and we now have compendia of the writings of Al Qaeda more broadly. You can purchase these. You know, they're basically primary source collections. Um, we now have that for the Taliban. I mean, what's fascinating about, I think, if you like this culture, acknowledging it's very, you know, diverse internally, is that these people are representatives of political movements who seek followers. They speak. They often are very, I'd say, skilled at at visual imagery. And especially now, I mean, what's fascinating is that, I mean, the Taliban you know, used to shoot televisions. They used to, you know, blow up uh, VCR, um, you know, videotapes. Um, they used to string audio and video cassettes from trees and kind of ceremonial hangings, right? That we're we're killing this nefarious, infidel technology that is doing the work of Satan. And yet today, in plastic, I mean, one of the keys to the Taliban success is that they got really good at using media. I mean, brilliant at using. Uh, the written word, the spoken word, music, actually. Um, and, you know, Hollywood. Hollywood is the gold standard. And these guys have studied how to create drama, how to speak to modern users. I mean, Islamic State did this. I mean, the, the role of media, new media. I mean, I am I follow and I am followed by senior Taliban leaders, which is, you know, bizarre, you know, on Twitter. On they, Twitter? I don't know why they care about me. I'm 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 nothing. Uh, they fo- they follow they follow you on Twitter. I don't know why. This is no joke. This is no joke. So it's they are part of our modern world, and it's how they talk, and it's how they recruit, and this is part of the. This is why they are. You know, so so Bin Laden. If you read Bin Laden, he he speaks multiple languages. I would say it's uh, it's environmentalism. You know, the West is bad because we destroyed the planet. The West is bad because we abuse women. So in, in class, you know. Uh, especially, you know, female students are very surprised to learn and actually say, you know, this this feminist argument is not, you know, we start with, you know, this is a murder. This is a person who has taken human life, innocent life, over and over again. And he is, um, you know, aspirationally genocidal. But let's try to understand what he's about. So we walk through the text, read them, and people are shocked to learn that it's not just about you know, quotations from the Quran strung together in some irrational fashion. Mm-hmm. He knows, um, I mean, at the core, I'd say, is the problem of human suffering. And he has a geography of that that is mostly Muslim, but he talks about the suffering of Kashmir. All right, so if you have a student in your class who's from South Asia, who knows about Kashmir, you know, he or she will say, that's not entirely inaccurate, you know. Yeah. 
the Indian state commits atrocities in Kashmir. Uh, you know, Pakistanis doing that too. You know, Palestine is an issue, right? So you have in the American university setting, people across the spectrum who get that, you know, Palestinians have had a raw deal. And so it's a victimhood is, is central and it's Muslim victimhood, which is primary. But as a number of scholars have, have written, and I'm, you know, I, I definitely think this is a, a, a framework for what this is useful. I mean, in this kind of vocabulary, in this, in this framing, in this narrative, um, today, in today's world, if we think of today's world being post-Cold War, 91 to the present, looking at the series of Gulf Wars, and seeing the visuals of that, I think that, you know, I think the American public has been shielded from some of this, but if you look at, you know, the, the carnage of the Iraqi army that George H.W. Bush produced, right? Or you think of, you know, the, the images of the suffering of Iraqi children under George H.W. Bush's sanctions, U.S.-British airstrikes. Then you have Madeleine Albright answer a question on 60 Minutes saying, do you think, you know, the deaths of half a million Iraqi kids is is worth it? You know, is that justified to contain Saddam Hussein? And she says on camera, yes, that it's, it's worth it to me. If you put that all together, I mean, American kids, and of course, the American public, they're not always aware of those, those facts of global history. But these guys are. And they they very capably use these images, use these tropes, and use facts. I mean, the fact I mean, some of these things are, are not are not deniable. I mean, the the mm-hmm. I mean these estimates about the number of Iraqi civilian children dead, you know, that, that came from I think the Lancet and it came from yeah, those are those are estimates. But looking at this point of point of view of 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 Amman, of you know, Jaffa, of Nairobi, you know, just think around the planet. Um and if you see yourself as the victim of this great imperial power, you know, you see why especially young men would be drawn to a, a road of, of, of self-sacrifice. And the idea is that in, in killing others, you are making them feel how you feel. Yeah. Because they won't listen to your arguments reasonably because they won't you know, recognize Palestinian suffering, Bosnian suffering, right? Chechen suffering, you go across the planet, right? Because they won't recognize our suffering, we're going to speak to you in the only language you understand, and that's violence. And look at the violence of of the post-1991 world, right? In which American air power really becomes a global, you know, kind of fact in the lives of so many people. Um, and then the big mistake after 9-11, among many, I mean, fundamentally was taking the war on terror to some, you know, 30 or 40 countries, right? So that you have a more and more of the globe feel like they're under attack, right? And the, and the logic is that essentially it's not, it's not, it's Reba Laden, it's not, we're going to convert you and turn you into Muslims and that's why we're doing this. That that appears, that claim does appear at times. But it's, if you look at any given Bin Laden text, I mean, there are 40 claims in each text. I mean, it's kind of, it's dizzying, but he's a modern politician. He knows the language of, of social equality, you know, that there's a class dimension to it. There is an environmental dimension to it. There's a gender dimension to it. And yes, there are chronic quotes sprinkled in. And when he wants to speak that language, he knew that, you know, he's not a scholar. So he would often get a few recognized scholars to sign on. So mm-hmm. some of his declarations of jihad had his signature kind of sprinkled in with like a dozen other, other signatures from people who are somewhat known or at least yeah, with titles, right? Um, so 
as a kind of intellectual exercise, it's fascinating to see that he is throwing everything at the wall at one level. Um, that's one way to see that it's a it's a these are kind of testaments toward recruitment of people who, yes, they're angry, yes, they're unhappy, and this is what you know. I think for a broader public, it's hard to get. You're like, well, Bin Laden didn't suffer; he wasn't poor. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I mean, Lenin, Pol Pot. I mean, they're, they're so, speaking to, yeah. they're empathetic to the suffering, the landscape, yeah. the full landscape of suffering. Yeah. It's interesting to, to yeah. think about suffering. You know, America, the American public, American politicians and leaders, when they see what is good and evil, they're often not empathetic to the suffering of others. And what you're saying is Bin Laden perhaps accurately could speak to the ignorance of America, maybe the Soviet Union, to the suffering of their people. That's right. And I mean, if you look at the speeches and the ideas that are public of Hitler in the 1930s, he spoke quite accurately to the injustice and maybe the the suffering of the German people. It, I mean, charismatic politicians are good at telling accurate stories. It's not all fabricated, but they emphasize certain aspects. Right. And then the problem part is the actions you should take based on that. <laughs> that that's, right, right. So the, the, the narratives and the stories may be grounded in historical accuracy. Right. The actions then cross the line, Yeah. the I mean, ethical line. Yeah. I found that too. I mean, it, it's a, again, if you pick up just one of these texts, I mean, it's, it's a kaleidoscope. So the Hitler analogy is interesting because it's, you know, Hitler spoke to, he could speak to things like inflation, right? Which mm-hmm. really existed. Um, but he also appealed to the irrational emotions of Germans, right? He sought out scapegoats, you know, Jews, Roma, um, disabled people, homosexuals, and so on, right? I mean, that's also there in Bin Laden, too. I mean, the idea of, um, you know, a an anti-Semitism, uh, the constant flagging of Zionists and Crusaders. It's a kind of shotgun approach to a search for followers. But I also hasten to add that it's for all of the things that we could tick off saying, well, yes, Kashmiris have suffered, Chechens have suffered, and so on. Um, Bin Ladenism never became a mass movement. I mean, it never really, I think the, I mean, this is the encouraging thing, right, about ideology. I mean, I think the the blood on his hands always limited his appeal among Muslims and others. Um, but Bin Laden did have, I mean, he had a, there's a, there's a great book by um, a great scholar at, at UC San Diego, um, Jeremy Pressholt, who wrote a great book about global icons in which uh, he has Bin Laden, he has um, uh, Bob Marley, he has Tupac. You know, he asked why, you know, when he's doing research uh, in East Africa, why did he see young kids wearing Bin Laden shirts? They're also wearing like Tupac shirts. They're wearing Bin Bob Marley shirts. And basically it's a way of, of looking at... Um, a kind of partial embrace of some aspects of the rebelliousness of some of these figures, some of the time by some people under certain conditions. Well, the terrifying thing to me, so yeah, there is a longing in the human heart to belong to a group and a charismatic leader is somehow, especially when you're young, just a catalyst for all of that. And, and I tend to think that perhaps it's actually hard to be a Hitler 
So a, a leader so charismatic that he can rile a nation to, to war. And bin Laden, perhaps were lucky, was not sufficiently charismatic. I, I feel like if his writing was better, if his speeches were better, if his ideas were stronger, yeah. uh, better, it's like uh, more viral, and then there would be more people, right. kind of um, yeah. young people uniting around him. So right. in, some, right. in some sense, it's almost like accidents of history of just how much charisma, mm. how much charisma a particular evil person has, oh, a yeah. person I mean, like it's... Bin Laden. I think it's fair. Evil, evil works. I think. Um, so you think Bin Laden is evil? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was a a mass murderer. Um, I'm just saying that you know his ideas were they're more complex than than we have tended to acknowledge. Um, they had they have a, a wider potential resonance than we would acknowledge. I mean, and also I guess what I'm the just one fundamental point is that um, thinking about the complexity of Bin Laden is also a way of removing him from Islam. Um, he is not an Islamic thinker. He is a cosmopolitan thinker who plays in all kinds of modern ideologies, which have proven to mobilize people in the past, right? So, um, you know, anti-Semitism, um, populism, environmentalism, and the kind of, and the, the urging to like, you know, do something about humanity, do something about suffering. That's why I think the actual, you ask about like, what motivates people to do this kind of stuff? I think that's why, if one goes below the level of leadership, and this is being reported, if you look at the the trial ongoing now in Paris of uh, the Bataclan murders, I think um, the court allowed some discussion of the backgrounds of the accused, and they come from different backgrounds. But if there's any common bond, it's kind of that they had some background in, in petty crime. Famously, in the seven seven bombings in London, the Metropolitan Police, you know, the UK authorities looked at all those guys. And what people want is this idea that like they must be very pious. They must be, you know, super Islamic to do this kind of stuff. They must be fanatical true believers. But what they found with those guys was that some were nominally Muslim, some went to mosques, some didn't. Um, some were single young guys with like criminal backgrounds. Some, you know, were like Sorry, they were you know, kind of misfits who never succeeded in anything. Uh, but others had, you know, at least one thing had a wife and family who he, you know, widowed and orphaned. And so there's no, I mean, f- for policing, I mean, if you're looking at it through that lens, there is no kind of typology that will predict who will become violent. And that's why I think we have to move beyond thinking about religious argumentation narrowly or by itself and think about things like geopolitics, think about how people respond to inequality, you know, the the existential threat of of, cri- of, of you know climate crisis, of um, a whole host of matters of and and think about th- th- this is a, a mode of political contestation. I mean, it's a violent one. It's one I condemn. It, it is evil, right? But it, these are people that are they're trying to be political. They're trying to change things in some way. It's not narrowly about like I want to impose Sharia law on you. You know, you must wear a veil. You must eat this kind of food. It's it's not that parochial but one, one another quick thought about your, your interesting claim about charisma in this i think that the one self-limiting feature of this subculture is that definitely you know i mentioned the enigma of, of not wanting to be seen and that the the kind of invisibility is a productive force of a power you know which a, a, a colleague of mine who 
knows ancient history far better than I, you know, said, oh, this is, you know, when she looked at, at Malomar initially, or we talked about Bin Laden, I mean, this kind of studied posture of staying in the shadows, you know, is also a source of authority potentially, because it, it, um, it invites the idea, and it's partly dictatorships do as well. I mean, it invites the idea that someone's working, and maybe it's the, it's the basis for a lot of QAnon or other conspiracies today, that mm-hmm. someone's working behind the scenes and things are going to go the right way. You can't see it. That's almost preferable because you can kind of feel it. Mm-hmm. And so not having someone out front can maybe, maybe more effective than having someone out in front constantly. Then maybe, the whole, maybe. And then the whole Bin Laden, you know, Omar thing, like you can't see me. Or if you look at, you know, Bin Laden's photographs and his video stuff, I mean, he's he's coy. Uh, some observers have noted that he's kind of effeminate. He doesn't strike this kind of masculine. He's not a Mussolini. He's not a Hitler, macho. I'm standing, my thumping my chest. He's not doing the theatrical chin, you know? Mm-hmm. The theater people tell us is so aggressive, um, you, you know. Oh, a chin? What, bringing yeah. your chin up? Is- oh, I, I saw a great uh, BBC theater person. It was kind of a, it was a makeover show about yeah. how to become a, a better- dictator? Oh, no. Uh, just a, a, a powerful, uh, uh, yeah, leader, authoritarian figure. No, just how to, how to like, get ahead in life. And then- uh, Oh, okay, cool. And just, and just like, about acting, like, how, how you, you can act differently, right? So it was, it was a BBC thing. Um, and this woman claimed that- um, you know, sticking your chin out like a wrestler does, right, is the most like male to male. I love this kind of most aggressive, hilarious analysis that people have about power. But watch like, the chin. Watch the chin. It's the same as analyzing like in wrestling styles that win or fighting or so on. There's so many ways to. Well, do the chin. This. I mean, the, the chin is a could be interesting verbal gesture, and I uh, I've watched enough Mussolini footage for my classes to try to the right moment and the chin is Mussolini is all about the chin so and i have watched human beings and human nature enough to know that there's more to a man a powerful man than a chin yeah no no, no i'm saying no, it's, i'm saying it's an act of aggression i'm not saying it's well, it's one of the many tools yeah, yeah, in the yeah. toolkit so, yeah yeah sure so yeah, she definitely i would it's not all about the chin but it's it's a but that's what i'm trying not, to yeah. tell you about bin laden yeah. i don't think he was yeah. del- deliberate enough with the way he presents himself. He, what, he, what I'm saying about Bin Laden that makes him different from these other characters is that because he played at being the scholar, he played at being a figure of, of modesty and humility. And that meant uh-huh. that he was often, again, if you watch his visuals, I mean, yes, there's one video of him firing a gun, but if you watch how he moved, how he wouldn't look at people directly, how his face was almost, I mean, he appears to be incredibly shy. Mm-hmm. He's soft-spoken, you know, his voice was low. He attempted to be poetic, right? So it wasn't a warrior kind of image that he tried to project of like a tough guy. It was, I'm, I'm demure. I'm humble. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm offering you this message. And that, and, and that, the, the appeal that he was going for was to see, um, to, you know, to project himself as a scholar, his knowledge and humility, the whole package carried with it an authenticity and a valor that would animate, inspire people to commit acts of violence, right? And so it's a different kind of like logic of like, yes, go and kill, right? So he he put he presented himself in contrast to the imperialist kind of yeah, um, sure. macho power, yeah, bombastic, whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. just yet another way of but, uh, yeah. And you have to have facial hair or hair of different kind that's recognizable. He had a very recognizable look too, or at least later in life. So. Yeah, no, he 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 tried to look the part. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm saying we're fortunate that whatever right. calculation that he was making, he was not more um, effective. Yeah. I mean, there's the, the world is full of terrorist organizations and we're fortunate to the degree any one of them does not have a, an incredibly charismatic leader that right. attains the kind of power that's very difficult to to manage at the geopolitical level. Yeah, we and we credit the we credit the publics, you know, who don't you don't bind to that, right? Who see through this. We credit the the critics, you know. Um fairly on going back to 9-11 itself, one of the problems was that US government officials kept kind of leaning on Muslims to to condemn this as if all Muslims shared some collective responsibility or culpability. And in fact, um Dozens of scholars and organizations, hundreds, condemned this, but their condemnations never quite made it out. But it created a, a tension where, you know, if you wore a veil, you must have been one of them, and you must be on Team Bin Laden. And so a lot of the, you know, I think a lot of the popular violence and discrimination and and profiling came out of that urge to see a oneness, which you know Bin, La- Bin Laden projected. Right, he wanted to say we are one community. You know, if you are a Muslim, you must be with me. Right. But I think that that's where the, the, the diversity of Muslim communities became important because outside of small pockets, I mean, they didn't they didn't accept his leadership, right? Mm-hmm. People wore T-shirts in some countries. I mean, non-Muslims wore T-shirts because he was like he stuck it to the Americans. So mm-hmm. in Latin America, people are like, yeah, that was sad, but you know, finally, I mean, there was a kind of Schadenfreude in that moment yeah. internationally. It's like Che Guevara or somebody like that. Che, it's, yeah, it's, Che's the other character in uh, Pressel's book. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, it's just a symbol. Yeah. It's not exactly what he believed exactly. or the cruelty of actions he took. Right. It's more like he stood for an idea of revolution versus authority. That's right. And that's and that's a great way to understand Bin Ladenism and the whole phenomenon. But it, I think looking at the big picture, it's also, you wonder... You know, without ever end, right? I mean, is that? I mean, that's the the risk of being a kind of hyperpower, um, like the U.S., where you, in in insisting on a kind of unipolar world, in two thousand one, two thousand two, two thousand three, I mean, that created um, an almost irresistible target, you know, wherever the U.S. wanted to exert itself militarily. Before we go to the history of Afghanistan, the people, and I just want to talk to you about just some fascinating aspect of the culture let's go to the end withdrawal of u.s troops from afghanistan uh what are your thoughts on how that was executed how could it have been done better yeah an important question i mean i would preface all this by saying you know as i noted i think the war was a mistake um i had hoped the war would end sooner i think there were different exit routes all along the way again i think there were lots of policy choices in september in october when the war began um there were choices in december 2001 so we could look at almost every six month stopping point and say we could have done differently as it turns out though i mean the way it played out um you know it's been catastrophic and i think um the biden administration has remained unaccountable for the scale of the strategic and humanitarian and ethical failure that they're responsible for. Well, okay, let's lay out the full, there's George W. Bush, there's 
Barack Obama, there's Donald Trump, that's right. There's uh, Biden. Yeah. Uh, so they're all driving this van, and there's these exits, and they keep not taking yeah. the exits, and they're running out of gas. Yeah. I do this all the time, thinking, where am I going to pull off? I'll go to yeah. the vert till it's empty. How could it have been done better? And what exactly? Um, how much suffering? Have all the decisions along the way caused? What are the long-term consequences? What are the biggest things that concern you about the decisions we've made in both invading Afghanistan and staying in Afghanistan as long as we have? I mean, if we start at the end, as you propose, um, you know, the horrific scenes of the airport, you know, that was just one, one dimension. Um, I think in the weeks to come, I mean, we're going to see Afghanistan implode um, there are lots of signs that malnutrition, hunger, starvation are going to claim tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives this winter. And I think there is really nothing, there's no framework in place to forestall that. What is the government, what is currently the system there? What's the role of the Taliban? So there could be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands that starve uh, either just yeah. almost the famine or starve to death. Yeah. So this is economic implosion. This yeah. is political implosion. Yeah. What um, what's the system they're like, and what could be the one you know some inkling of hope? Right, right. The Taliban sit sit in control. That's unique. When they were in power in the nineteen nineties, from nineteen ninety six two thousand one, they controlled some eighty five to ninety percent of the country. Now they own it all, uh, but they have no budget. The Afghan banking system is frozen. So, so the financial system is a mess. And it's frozen by the U.S. because the U.S. is trying to use that lever to exert pressure on the Taliban. And so the ethical quandaries are, of course, legion, right? Do you re release that money to allow the Taliban to shore up their rule, right? The Biden administration has said no. But the banks aren't working. Uh, if you're in California, you want to send $100 to your cousin so she can buy bread, you can't do that now. It's almost impossible. There are some informal networks that are moving some stuff, but there are bread lines. The Taliban government is incapable, fundamentally, just of ruling. I mean, they, they can discipline people on the street. They can force people into the mosque. They can shoot people. They can beat protesters. They can put out a newspaper. They can have, they're great at diplomacy, it turns out. Uh, they can't rule this country. So essentially, the hospitals and the kind of healthcare infrastructure is being managed by NGOs that are international. Um, but many people had to leave, and, and the Taliban have impeded some of that work. They've told uh, adult women essentially to stay home, right? So a big part, big part of the workforce isn't there. So, the, I mean, the, the supply chain is, you know, is kind of crawling to a halt. Trade with Pakistan and its neighbors, I mean, it's kind of a transit trade economy. Um, it exports fruits. Pakistan has been closing the border because they're anxious about refugees. They want to exert pressure on the international community to recognize the Taliban because the Pakistan want the Taliban to succeed in power because they see that in Pakistan's national interest, especially 
through the lens of its rivalry with with India. So the Pakistan, the Pakistani security institutions are playing a double game. And essentially, the Afghan people are, are being held hostage. And so the Taliban are also saying, you know, if you don't recognize us, you're going to let tens of millions of Afghans starve. So to which degree is Taliban, like, who are the Taliban? What do they stand for? What do they want? Obviously, year by year, this changes. So what is the nature of this organization? Can they be a legitimate, peaceful, kind, respectful uh, government sort of holder of power? Or or are they fundamentally not capable of doing so? Yeah. I mean, the briefest answer would be that they are a clerical slash military organization. Um, they have, this is kind of a imperfect metaphor, but years ago, a German scholar used the term caravan to describe them. Mm-hmm. And that, that has some attractive elements because different people have joined the Taliban for different purposes at different times. But today, and people tell us, you know, scholars who know more about the movement than I have said, listen, the Taliban is this kind of hodgepodge of different actors and people and competing interests. And I think, so we have a lot of scholars who say, listen, they're, they're, it's polycentric. It's got people in this city and that city and so on. I think actually, I was always very skeptical. You know, how do they know this? I mean, this is an organization that doesn't want you to know um, where that money comes from and so on. But I would say now that we have a clearer picture of what has happened, I'd say they were a astoundingly well-organized clerical military organization that has a, a very cohesive and enduring ideology, which is quite idiosyncratic if we zoom out and continue the conversation we're having about Islam and how we think about radicalism and you know who's drawn to what. Um, people throw different terms around to describe the Taliban, some use a term that links it to a kind of school of thought born in the 19th century in India, the Deobandi school. Uh, but if you look at their teachings, it's very clear now, I think that these labels, it's like saying, you know, you're an MIT guy. Well, what does that mean? I mean, MIT is home to dozens of different potentially kinds of intellectual orientations, right? I mean, attaching the name of a school doesn't quite capture I mean, it, it, it's, yeah. it's complicated. I mean, yeah. actually, MIT is interesting because yeah. it's, it's, I would say MIT is different than Stanford, for example. Yeah, I think MIT has a more kind of narrow. Yeah, I hear you. Um, Bad analogy on my part, maybe. <laughs> well, no, it's interesting because I would argue that there's some aspect of a brand like Taliban yeah. or MIT. Yeah, no relation that has a kind of uh, interact like. The, the brand results in the behavior of the, like enforces a kind of behavior on the people and the people yeah, yeah. feed the brand. And like, there's a loop, I think yeah. Stanford is a good example of something that's more distributed. There's sufficient amount of diversity mm. in like all kinds of like centers and all that kind of stuff that the the the, the, the brand doesn't become one thing. Yeah. I mean, MIT is so engineering. It's yeah, so no, I, I think in that. Okay, so scratch, <laughs> scratch MIT. Let's scratch Stanford too, because I, I think Stanford's more like MIT than yeah. than than you might imagine. But uh, but isn't Taliban? Yeah. Isn't it pretty? I don't think there's a diversity. So yeah. So like, sorry. So the, just to rephrase. So so people say, oh, the Deobandi school. I'm like, what is that? I mean, but the Taliban are they're an ethnic movement. 
they represent a vision of Pashtun power, right? Pashtuns are people who are quite internally diverse, who actually speak multiple dialects of, of Pashto, who reside across the frontier of Pakistan and Afghanistan. There are Pashtuns who live all over the planet, right? There's a community in Moscow, California, everywhere, right? So it's a global diaspora of sorts. Pashtuns have a kind of genealogical imagination so that lots of Pashtuns can tell you the names of their grandparents, great-grandparents, and so on. And that's kind of a, there's a sense of pride in that. Pashto language is a kind of core element of that identity, but it's not universal. So for example, you can meet people who say, I am Pashtun, but I don't know Pashto. So as you as you claw away at this idea, it, it, it's amorphous. It also means different things, different people at different times. So saying the Taliban are, are Pashtun requires lots of qualifiers because lots of Pashtuns will say, no, no, I, I, I have nothing to the Taliban. I hate those people. You know, so the Taliban tried to mobilize other Pashtuns with limited success, but their core membership is almost exclusively Pashtun. And they say, no, no, we represent Afghans. We represent pious Muslims. And so in recent two, three years, they've gone further to say, no, we have ethnic groups. We have Uzbeks, we have Tajiks, we have Hazaras. And in the north of Afghanistan, in recent years, they did do a bit better at drawing in people who were very disaffected because of the government, and they were able to diversify their ranks somewhat. But if you watch August 15 and who they've appointed, what language they've used, how they've presented themselves, it's clear that you know they are Pashtun, they are male, and they are extremely ideologically cohesive and disciplined, I'd say. Right? So I think that a lot of the polycentrism, blah, 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 some of that stuff was a way to fight a war. Um, they, are, they are fundamentally, you know, a guerrilla movement. They see themselves as kind of pious Robin Hoods. The rhetoric is very much about taking from the rich, taking from the privileged, giving to the poor, being on the side of the underdog, fighting against evil. And so, I mean, their bag, if you like, their thing, their central theme, their brand is about public morality. And so their origin story, going back to 1994, is that they interceded, they broke up a gang of criminals who were trying to rape people. And so there's a very interesting kind of like emphasis on like sexuality and on on public morality and really being the core of like, you know, we're going to restore order and, yeah. and public morality. And how that translates into governance is something they've never sorted out. I mean, how do you run a banking system? If your intellectual priorities are really about you know, the length of a beard. <laughs> and then and then their path to power in a, in a kind of abstract sense. I mean, a lot of that was very much driven by, um, if you like, propagating the promise of martyrdom. Mm-hmm. And that sounds, I, I don't mean to say that in a way that, to make it sound ridiculous, to make it sound like it's, um, you know, a moral judgment. It's simply, I think, a fact. It's a fact of their appeal that they promised young men who have known nothing else but studying in certain schools, if at all, but they've known fighting and they've known, they've known victimization. And this isn't, I'm not asking for like sympathy for them, but I think the reality is that a lot of the, we know about the kind of foot soldiers is that they, they lost families in bombings, um, in airstrikes, in night raids, you know, I mean, orphans have always been a stream. Um, 
living in in all male society, uh, not knowing girls, not knowing women, hearing things from outside about places like Kabul, and so there's always been this kind of uh, urban rural dimension. It's not it's not just that, but I think there's a there's a whole imagination that being Taliban captures, and the whole margin thing is really it's um, you know I think to any religious person, I mean it's not a it's not a bizarre idea. I mean, it, it animates, I mean, so many global traditions, you know, but I think the, but I think when you try to tell like an army colonel, right, if you were to have a conversation with, you know, a U.S. Marine about this, I mean, some would get it from their own religious backgrounds, but I think the, it, it's an alien idea, but I think it, it's essential to kind of stretch our imagination to understand that's, that's attractive. And now one of the dilemmas going forward is that they've got to pivot from martyrdom and, and some have been, some have told foreign journalists, I mean, it's good that we're in charge now. We're going to build a proper state, but I'm, I, it's kind of boring. Um, I want to keep fighting. I want to, maybe I'll do that in Pakistan. Yeah. I mean, it's nice yeah. that they are expressing that thought. So, some are not even honest sufficiently with themselves to express that kind of thought. If you're, if you're a fighter, yeah, it's a, you, you see that with a bunch of fighters or professional athletes once they retire yeah they don't know it's very it's boring (laughs) yeah yeah and so like the if the spirit of the taliban yeah even the 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 best version of the taliban is to fight is to be martyrs is to yeah is to and the the, paint the world as good and evil and you're fighting evil and all that kind of stuff that's difficult to imagine how they can run an education system a banking system respect all kinds of citizens with different yeah. backgrounds and religious beliefs and yeah. women and uh, all that kind of stuff. So Yeah, and, they, and they've, they've walked into Kabul and other major cities. Um, you know, some of them are young, they, never, they didn't know those places, but also the very important obstacle for them is that Afghan society has changed. I mean, it's yeah. it's not what, even for the older guys, it's not what they knew in the 1990s. Um, some always had some ambivalence about you know the capital but now it's totally different. I mean, they've been shocked to see. I think to me, one of the most striking features of the last few weeks has been that you know women have come out on the streets and have stood in their faces and said, you know, we demand rights, we demand education, we demand employment, and um, these foot soldiers are are paralyzed. They're not sure. They don't know what to do with women. Period. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and they don't know what to do with being yelled at and having someone stick their fingers in their faces. I mean, this is not not what they've imagined. And so I think, and and at this at this juncture, there are still foreign cameras around, so they have committed acts of violence against women, against journalists. They've beaten people. Yeah. They've disappeared people. Even with cameras around, even in this tense period. Yeah, but I think that when the cameras, you know, retreat, and that that's not going to happen, it's going to get much worse. Yeah. I think. So the the challenge now is, you know, can the Taliban rule, and and then this is where the, the diplomacy is so important because. The Taliban can't rule in isolation, and they know that. And part of the success is due to the fact that they were, they became very good at talking to other people in the last, I mean, it's been building for the last decade, but I said the last five years, I mean, they always had Pakistan's backing. And so the Taliban are, we, we noted they're a military force, very effective guerrilla force. They beat, they beat NATO. I mean, this is, still hasn't sunk in. I mean, the fact that they, with light arms, using suicide attacks using mines you know improvised explosive devices um machine guns in some in you know recent years they got sniper rifles and you know 
from the summer, they got American equipment on a broad scale, right? They have airplanes. They have a lot that they will be able to use eventually. Um, so, that, but still, basically, it's a, it's a story of AK forty sevens, some American small arms, and mines. So it's very Ho Chi Minh, very old school guerrilla fighting, right? Yeah. And they defeated the most powerful military alliance in world history, probably. So that is not yet sunk in, and what that means for American and global politics. Um, and now they're trying to rule, right? They know they need international support. And their most consistent backer has been Pakistan, who sees them as a extension of Pakistani power. You know, and this is very important for a Pakistani elite that, of course, is looking toward India. They want to have their rear covered, right? They want to make sure that these Pashtuns don't cause trouble for Pakistan. And they like, I mean, for some of the security forces, they like this vision of the Islamic State that the Taliban are building there because they those are not so distant from their views of what Pakistan should be. But the Taliban have been smart enough to kind of diversify their potential international allies. Mm -hmm. So everyone in the neighborhood has wanted the U.S. to leave, right? If we go back to 2001, there were Iranian and American special forces in the north working together against the Taliban to displace them using, you know, Iranian, American, and then Afghan resistance forces against the Taliban. And that was a real moment of refreshment if we go back to the missed exits. Um, the relationship with Iran could have been different at that moment. But the U.S. under George W. Bush, you know, devised this axis of evil language, put them together with their enemy Iraq and then North Korea. All that went south. Um, that was a missed opportunity. Um, but in recent years, the Taliban and Iran have, have kind of papered over the differences they allowed the Taliban to open some offices in, on Iranian territory, likely shared some resources, some intelligence, some sophisticated weaponry. Um, and then the Taliban went to Moscow. And for the Putin administration, you know, they've long been worried that you know, they see the Taliban as a kind of you know, disease that will potentially move north, infect Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, and maybe creep into Russia's sphere of influence, Maybe that's why they have, you know, a bunch of troops sitting in Tajikistan. I mean, the, the one, you know, forward base that Russia still has in Central Asia is in Tajikistan. And so the Taliban were always, you know, a, a worrying point, but also useful because they could say, well, you know, um, in case the Taliban get out of control, we need to be here. And so Tajikistan said, okay, you know, you're helping, you're helping secure us. And yes, it impinges upon our sovereignty, but it's okay, you know. So Putin said, you know, let's, you know, give another black eye to the Americans and let's, you know, treat the Taliban as if they're the kind of government in waiting. Let's have them come to Moscow multiple times. This summer, you know, for the last year or two, they've been talking to the, talking to China, right? So the photographs of senior Taliban figures going from their office in Qatar, which was a major, major blow to the U.S.-backed government, the fact that they were able to open up an office in Qatar that at one point began to fly a flag of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan that basically said we're a state in the, in the waiting. Yeah. And as the U.S.-backed Afghan government failed and failed and failed at, at at ruling too, right, as they showed how corrupt they were, and as they really alienated more and more Afghans by committing acts of violence against them, mm -hmm. by stealing from them, by, you know, basically creating a kind of kleptocracy, right? Um 
the Taliban said, we are pure, we are not corrupt, and look at us. We're winning on the battlefield internationally. Look, we're talking to China. We're talking to Putin, we're talking to China. Yeah. We're a legitimate, powerful center of Central yeah. Asia. And also kind of, you know, hinting that, you know, we, oh, we have a website. I mean, the, the whole digital <laughs> angle is amazing because they they began to, to and this is important actually, to, they, yeah. they had a, a website which grew more and more sophisticated. Again, after having, you know, shot televisions and these kind of ceremonial killings of, of these infidel devices, right? They said, we have a government, we have commissions, we have a complaint line. They lifted all this technocratic language that you get from any UN document, you know, about good governance and all the kind of, you know, generic language that the NGO world has produced for us, right, in English. They reproduced that in five languages on their Taliban website. And, and of course, I'm not saying even believe this, but it was like, you know, just put me in coach. You know, I, I know the playbook. I know how to run a government. And look, we have a we have an agricultural commission. We have, um, you know, a taxation system. And, and again, this idea, and then on the ground, they had their own law courts and they would creep into a district, assassinate some people, the local authority figures, mm-hmm. men of influence, um, talk to local clerics, either get them on board or kill them and say, you know, this state is corrupt, but we're bringing you justice. This is our calling card. Yeah. We're bringing public morality and justice. And then to a broader world, they said, you know, yeah, things didn't go perfectly, the whole Al Qaeda thing, you know. You know, wish we could have a do-over on that. Um, we're not going to let anyone hurt you from our territory. We just want to rule. And people like us and and look. And so if we look at the neighborhood, Iran, even Central Asian states, after a while, recognize that they can make some money. I mean, one of the one thing that Uzbekistan likes about the current arrangement, or they're not they're not hostile to, is that they have all these contracts. They can potentially make some money from, you know. The pipeline dream remains alive, running natural gas, oil to, you know, eventually the Indian Ocean, to markets, you know, beyond Central Asia. It's sitting on a couple trillion dollars probably in, in mineral resources that China would love to have, of course. And so people are looking at Afghanistan now, after 20 years, saying, you know, under American rule, it was a basket case, right? Um, there was immense human suffering, incredibly violent. The world did not start counting civilian casualties in Afghanistan until 2009. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about that. The war went on for eight years. The Taliban were never really defeated. They just went to Pakistan. They went to the mountains. They went to the woods. Um, and so all these different American operations, as you noted, under Bush, Obama, Trump, and so on, um, killed countless civilians. The U.S. never accounted for that. We never we never even counted. Um, Trump escalated the civilian casualties by escalating the air war. But a lot of this was like very ugly on the ground, you know, night raid stuff where you drop into a hamlet and and massacre people. And then you're not honest about what happened, right? So that dynamic continued to fuel the growth of the Taliban from below. So the foot soldiers, they never they never ran out of foot soldiers. I mean, the US and its allies killed tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of, of Taliban fighters over the last 20 years. But they just sprouted up again. And part of that was the kind of solidarity culture, the male bonding of of, of martyrology, of, you know, of martyrdom and of, and of, you know, revenge and a sense of, um, you know, the foreign invader. And I've heard, I mean, I've, you know, I haven't taught a ton of U.S. military people, but through the Hoover, you know, they, they put officers in our classes sometimes and met a few wonderful, you know, army and, and Marine officers who I really enjoyed. You know, we came from the South like me, always had great rapport with them. And, 
And they expressed a range of opinions about this. I think that, you know, I learned a lot from some of them who said, yeah, I mean, I, I get that. I get why they hate us. I get why they're still fighting because, you know, last week we just killed 14 of their, you know, fellow villagers. So the officers, the guys on the ground, you know, fighting this war, we're not stupid about that. I mean, they, they got the human dimension of that. And yet no one got off the exit. As you said, people, people kept driving. Um, but going forward now, internationally, it's critical that they have, I mean, they've, they've had meetings. I mean, what the Taliban have done since August 15th is a lot of diplomacy. They've had meetings. They've had people, they've had Tashkent come. They've had Beijing come. They've had Moscow come. I mean, they've had uh, major visits from Islamabad, mm -hmm. uh, from security people, from diplomatic circles. And they're counting on things being different this time. I mean, the first time around, the the only people who backed the Taliban by recognition, giving them diplomatic recognition, were the Saudis, the Pakistanis, and the UAE. And because of Al-Qaeda, because of opium, because of some of the human rights stuff, you know, the U.S. pushed everyone to like, you know, let's not recognize the state. Even though the, the U.S. did, I mean, Colin Powell famously, you know, the summer of 2000, 2001, you know, we did give a few grants and aid um, to the Taliban as I kind of like massaging negotiations, they kept talking about bin Laden, but they also wanted them to stop um, opium production. I mean, Afghanistan throughout all this period we've talked about is the global center of opium production. I mean, over the years, more and more of the Afghan economy continued to today is devoted to the opium trade. Opium, which is uh, the thing that leads to heroin, yep. uh, some of the painkillers. Yep. And even if Afghan poppies don't make it to, you know, Hoboken, you know, that they are not the the source of American deaths, yeah. you know, yeah. they are part of a a universal market, a global market, which, you know, I think any economist will tell you is part of the story of, of our opium, you know, problem. Uh, so something I read maybe a decade ago now, and I just kind of looked it up again to yeah. bring it up to see your opinion on this, is um, there's a 2010 report by the International Council on Security and Development that showed that 92% of Afghans in Helmand and Kandahar province know nothing of the 9-11 attacks on US in 2001. Is this at all representative of what you know? Is this possible? So basically, put another way, yeah. it is it possible that a lot of Afghans don't even know the reason why there may be troops or the sort of um, American-provided narrative for why there's troops, so American soldiers, and American drones overhead in uh, Afghanistan? Right. I mean, my gut response not knowing the details of, of this actual poll is so that's a um a very unhelpful way to think about how Afghans relate to the world. And I think um you know it could be, you know, if you go to my hometown in North Carolina, if you knock on some doors, you may meet people who don't know all kinds of things. I could probably walk around this neighborhood here in California and there'd be all kinds of people who don't know all kinds of things. Um you know, Kyrie Irving apparently thinks the earth is flat. I mean, you know, so we could we could make a lot of certain kinds of ignorance, I think. But I think what I would say, and then and then there's also, I mean, a companion point may be that 
in thinking about the withdrawal, the collapse, the return of the Taliban, there's been a big conversation about, um, you know, what do Afghans think of us, really? And this famous piece in The New Yorker was about how, you know, many people like the Taliban, you know, that many women interviewed, supposedly, in this piece, um, you know, were sympathetic because they'd lost family members and all the violence. And the idea kind of was that, you know, we haven't thought about that at all. When in fact, you know, of course we have and lots of people have. But I think if you're just dropping into the conversation, if you look at like an immediate arc of coverage of Afghanistan and the United States, I mean, the arc went from lots of coverage during, of course, 9-11 and its aftermath, lots of coverage during Obama's surge, and then quickly dropped down the last decade has been almost nothing. So if you ask the same question about Americans or of Americans, I'm not sure what they would say to you, what percentage would actually know why the U.S. is in X, Y, or Z either, right? But on the Afghan side, just to return to that for a moment, I think the you know, we can fetishize these provinces. They are a kind of, you know, a place where Taliban support has been greatest. Also where there's been the most violence, where the Americans have been most committed to trying to root out the Taliban movement. This where is Helmand and Kandahar. Exactly, in the south. What are the other yeah, parts? Yeah. It's in the south of Afghanistan. Yeah, and it's, it's mostly Pashtun, not exclusively, but, but mostly Pashtun, you know, mostly rural. What is or, Pashtun? That's the ethnic group, you know, that, that, that the Taliban claim to represent, right? Mm-hmm. So they are this group. What that, other groups are yeah. there? Okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah, sorry. So in cities, you'll find everything, right, that is in Afghanistan. You'll find Uzbeks, Tajiks, Hazaras. Um, these are people who, you know, Uzbek is a, is a Turkic language, right? Uh, most Uzbeks live in what is now Uzbekistan, but they form majorities in some northern parts of the city. I'm sorry, of the country of Afghanistan. But what I emphasize is that... Um, and you can, you can find online an ethnographic map of Afghanistan, and you'll see green where Pashtuns live, red where Hazaras live, orange where Uzbeks live, you know, purple where Tajiks live. Then there are a bunch of other smaller groups of, of different kinds. You know, there are um, Nuristanis, there are Baluch, there are in different religious communities. There are Sunni, Shia, different kinds of Shia. What are the key differences between them? Is it a religious basis from the origins of where they immigrated from and how different are they? Yeah. So they're all, I mean, they're all indigenous, I think. I mean, there's a kind of mythology that some groups have been there longer, right? So they have a greater claim to power. But historically, I mean, it's like, you know, ethnic groups anywhere. People have different narratives about themselves. But many, many Pashtuns would tell you not all, but many would say we are the kind of state builders of Afghanistan, the dynasty that ruled much of the space that was born in the mid 18th century, that ruled until 1973, more or less, generalizing, you know, was a Pashtun dynasty. The Taliban have definitely said to some audiences, we are the rightful rulers because we are Pashtun. Mm-hmm. Um, the trick, though, is, and the reason I'm, I don't mean to be evasive, but just to, to convey some of the complexity. Um, one quick answer as well, they're majorities and minorities. I mean, one finds that a lot along with those maps. But I would say suspend any firm belief in that because that could be entirely wrong. In fact, there's never been a modern census of Afghanistan. So when journalists say Pashtuns are the majority, or they're the biggest group, I would say not so fast. I would say not so fast because of migration is one major issue. No major um, modern census Actually, the Soviets got pretty close, but didn't quite, you know, find something comprehensive and didn't publicize it, knowing that it was, um, you know, in modern times, ethnicity can be the source of political mobilization. 
it's not it's not innately so, but it's been part of the story. But then you have mixed families, right? So a lot of people you'll meet, you'll encounter in the diaspora and around. I mean, well, um, I am, you know, my my one parent is Tajik, one is one is Pashtun, right? Or I'm Pashtun, as I mentioned before, but I don't speak Pashto, right? Or I am Hazara, but you read about us as as Shi'i Hazaras. In fact, I'm a Sunni Hazara, or I'm a secular Hazara, or I'm an atheist Hazara. I mean, everything's possible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of my friends, if he if he were here, he'd say I'm Kabuli. You know, I'm I'm from Kabul. So if you think about it in Russian terms, you know, it, it means a lot. If you're a Moskvich, you know, if you're from Peter or yeah. Moskva, I mean, you know. Yeah, well, even even here, yeah. there's yeah. Bostonians, yep. that's right, Texans, yep. Californians, yeah, yeah, East Coast, West Coast, all East that Coast, stuff. So yeah. Those are all part of the mix here. So, you ask about Kandahar and Helmand, then I would say, yeah, if you go out to, you know, a, a pomegranate, you know, field, you'll meet a guy who may reckon time differently from you and me, who may not be literate. He may not have ever had a geography lesson, but if you go one door over, you may meet a guy who, you know, whose life path has taken him to live in, you know, six countries. Mm-hmm. He may speak five languages. And these are all things I'm not saying they're all, these are just because people you know, have money and can go fly around. I mean, they're people who are displaced by war from late 1970s, right? Even already in the early 70s, people were traveling by the tens of thousands to Iran, you know, as labor migrants. And once you get to Iran, once you get to Pakistan, once you get to Uzbekistan, you then connect to all kinds of cosmopolitan cultures. And in fact, I think one of the themes of of the book, you know, that you may or may not have read, it may put you to sleep. Um, you know, Afghan Modern was about you know conceptualizing Afghanistan as a cosmopolitan place where for centuries people went on the move and trade in this area. You think of you know, I think this mischaracterization of places like Helmand and Kandahar. You know, you fly in or you're part of a Marine battalion. And you see people there and they look different. And I think in our imagination, if I can generalize, you know, they look like they've been there for millennia, right? The dress, the whatever, right? The, you think of technology, you think of the the mud compounds and so on. You think of, you know, animal drawn transportation, that kind of stuff, right? Or the motorbike, right? At most is what they have. But in fact, if you follow those families, um, their trade has taken them to Northern India for centuries, Right. The trade is connected them to cosmopolitan centers. You know, say they have a scholar in the family. That scholar may have studied all over the Middle East, South Asia, right? You know, their ancestors may have been horse traders who went all the way to Moscow, right? I mean, we we have historic records of all these people traveling across Eurasia, pursuing all kinds of livelihoods. And so Afghanistan is this paradox of, of visually looking remote and looking like it's kind of stuck in time, but the family trajectories... And the current trajectories are astoundingly cosmopolitan and mobile. And so, um, and a a conception of being a a world center is also quite strong. So, you know, another way to frame that question about like, do they know about 9-11 would be like, why should we know about 9-11? Because we are at the center of something important, right? We are the center of Asia. We are the heart of Asia. We have a kind of historic greatness. We are, you know, a proud culture of our own achievements, right? Mm -hmm. So we're not worried about that, right? That said, I mean, sure, there are different narratives about why Americans are there, why people are being killed. You know, of course, you'd find, you know, they want to convert us. You know, they want our gold. They want our opium. They want X, Y, and Z, right? There was a recent story about a a Taliban official 
sitting in an office in Kabul and a journalist asked him, can you find in this rotating globe, find your country, find where are we sitting right now? And he was filmed not being able to do it. And so a lot of, you know, race sophisticated Afghans in the diaspora were saying, you know, ha ha, look at this. And yeah, that exists. I mean, I think I could go to my Stanford classroom and there'd be a lot of kids who wouldn't know where Afghanistan is too, right? But but I guess I, I wouldn't I wouldn't use those metrics to suggest that this is a a place that doesn't have a sense of its place in the world and of geopolitics. I think if anything, being a relatively small country in a very complicated neighborhood, I mean everybody, every cab driver, I mean people have a I mean, you know, this is where America is dif- is different because I don't think Americans have this sense. You know, we, we're talking about Moscow and stuff. I think, you know, Moscow cab drivers, I think a lot of them are going to tell you like what's happening in the world and why, mm-hmm. right? And it's just part of, it's part of their thing, right? You can find that in Ghana. You can find that in Mexico City, right? You can find that lots of places. So I think Afghans are part of a very sophisticated kind of mapping of the world and where they fit in. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them remarkably have done it firsthand, which is what struck me so much and, and you know, relaying my experiences from the 1990s in Tashkent places that these guys had already lived in more countries than I'd ever been. They already knew half those languages. I mean, this one friend's Russian was impeccable. Um, and of course it helped. They had Russian girlfriends. They had, you know, they, they mixed with the police. They had run-ins. I mean, they, this wasn't something you got from a book, right? This was like hard knock life. I mean, one, one friend was from a wealthy family uh, in this trading diaspora and he was imprisoned. I mean, they, they sent him to prison uh, in, in Pakistan. And he talks about how he could start like running, running in the jail, you know, taking cigarettes to people, doing little things and kind of, you know, it's, these are not stories of like, oh, I went to, I went to Harvard and so I'm so learned because of this. It's, I, know, you know what I mean, but, it's, it's a, it's a whole range of experiences. The yeah. interesting thing is a survey is a survey and uh, yeah. it doesn't reflect ignorance as you're saying, perhaps but it may reflect a different geopolitical view of the world than mm. the West has. Yeah. So if, you know, for a lot of the world, 9-11 was one of the most important moments of recent human history. Yeah. And for Afghanistan to not to know that, especially when they're part of that story, yeah. means they have a very different, like uh, there's, there could be a lot of things said. One is the spread of information is different, the channels of the way information is spread. And uh, two, the things they care about. Maybe they see themselves in uh, as part of a longer arc of history with the bickering of these superpowers that seem to want to go to the moon uh, are not as important as the big sort of arc that's been the story of Afghanistan. It, it, you know, that, that's an interesting idea, but um, it's still a bit, if at all, representative of the truth. Right. It's heartbreaking that they're not, do not see themselves as an um, active player in this game between uh, yeah. the United States yeah. and the, uh, the uh, and Central Asia, because they're such a critical player. And it feel, and, and obviously, um, in many ways, get the short end of the stick in this whole interaction with right. uh, right. occup- uh, you know, invasion of Afghanistan for many years, and then uh, this uh, rushed with withdrawal of troops, right. and and now the economic uh, collapse, and the yeah. it's um, it's yeah, it's sad yeah. in some ways. No, it's very. It's, I mean, it, you know, another way to put it is this. Um, I mean, yeah, there's a range of knowledge, and and you're right. The information flows are 
are are peculiar to particular geographies and histories and stuff. And I think that you know plucking out one sample from some fairly remote area from one like follow the follow the agricultural products. I mean, and this is where you know I think sure. urban rural divides sure. used to mean a lot more in the nineteenth century, right? So a lot of like the nuts and bolts of history is about conceiving of these kinds of distinctions, you know, but I think that if one has the privilege of traveling a bit, you see that like urban areas are are fed by rural hinterlands. And if you look, think of who actually, you know, brings the bread, the milk, you know, the pomegranates and so on, it creates these networks and then, you know, mobility channels, information and so on. But yeah, the, but, but your broader point about like the tragedy of this, I mean, I guess I, if I can quote uh, a brilliant student of mine, an Afghan American woman who just received her PhD, who's now, you know, doctor. Um, he's a great scholar. You know, we've done several events now trying to just think through what's happened. And of course, she's very emotionally affected by it. And she continues to ask a really great question. And I, if I can get her phrasing right, you know, if you think of the cycle of like the Taliban being in power in 2001 and the way in which that affected women in particular, you know, half Afghan, half, half of the society, right? Then you think of this 20 year period of violence and, and, you know, missed exits, right? And repeated tragedy that also it created a space. I mean, it created a space for a whole, I'd say generationally, it created a sense, a space for people to realize something new. And I think, so we have to attend to the the dynamism of the society, right? So yeah, this happened you know, mostly in Kabul, other big cities, Mazar Sharif, Herat, and Kandahar. Um, but you can't limit your analysis to that because of things like radio, television, everyone got a TV channel. There's a wonderful documentary called um, Afghan Star that I recommend to your listeners and viewers that it's about a singing show, a singing contest show. But you see just just for some of these things about like connections. I mean, it's a it's a show by an independent, you know, television network that did drama. It did it did kind of infomercials for the government and huge American investment in it. So it wasn't politically neutral, but it did talk shows, did all this kind of stuff. But it did a singing show that became, you know, incredibly popular modeled upon the British and American, you know, American Idol kind of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and you could vote. So it had a kind of democratic practice element. But it's fascinating to see that, you know, people hooked up generators to televisions and watch this, you know, you think of like literacy rates. Literacy rates are imperfect and, you know, people who study, you know, medieval or modern Europe talk about how, yeah, no one could read and there weren't many books, but if someone had a book, it'd be read aloud to a whole village potentially or gathering. So there was much, you know, some of these metrics don't get what people actually receive as information or exposure because there's the magnifying power of open spaces and hearing radio in group settings, seeing television group settings, having telephone, you know, cheap telephones, which then become an access you know, point to the world and social media, right? So all the stuff swept across Afghan society as it did elsewhere, you know, um, in the last decade or more. So Afghan society became you know, in important ways, really connected to everything going on. And so you see that reflected politically in what people wanted. So you had some people, obviously, back to return to the Taliban. Some people wanted the status quo. But increasingly, many more people wanted something else. Um, and one of the great failures was to expose people to democracy, but only give them the rigged version. And so the U.S., you know, the State Department in particular, continued to double down on faked elections for the parliament and for the presidency in Afghanistan. What kind of elections? Faked fraudulent elections for parliament mm-hmm. and and for president mm-hmm. in Afghanistan again and again from the very beginning. And those, elect- those elections, 
we're partly theater for the U.S., right, for remaining on the road that you're describing, right, for not deviating, for not exiting, because we were building democracy there. In reality, the U.S. government knew it was never really building democracy there. It was establishing control. And elections were one means to gather control, right? But then you had, on the ground, especially among young people, going to university, you know, having experiences that were denied to them before, you know, they took these promises seriously. So part of the disillusionment that we see today is that, you know, they believed what the U.S. told them, that mm-hmm. they're constructing democracy. And of course, you know, cynics like us may have been thinking, well, you know, you're not really doing that. You're backing fraud. They believed it when they were younger, and now they're actually smart enough to understand that it's a farce. Yeah. But in so indirectly had the consequence of actually working. <laughs> yeah. And that it I mean, taught the young over yeah. a period of 20 years, yeah. young folks to believe that democracy is possible and then to realize what democracy is not. Exactly. Which is the right. current yeah, system. Beautifully said, beautifully said. And so, but now, but now look at us. Now it's, you know, it's now November. And so this whole period, and I, I wouldn't say like, you know, I, I wouldn't cast the last 20 years if we're looking at all the achievements, you know, I wouldn't put them in an American tally sheet like, oh, this is something we should pat ourselves on the back for. I think mm-hmm. that much of this happened actually against what the Americans wanted. I mean, the, the kind of free thinking, democracy wanting, I mean, even like, you know, we could point out on the religious, go back to the religious sphere. I mean, the the African religious landscape became very pluralistic. Um, lots of young people wanted a different kind of secular politics. Um, but the old, the old guard who wanted the status quo and wanted something that they'd fought for in the 1980s tended to still get American backing as the political elites who still tended to, to monopolize political power. Um, so all stuff was happening in, in different ways. I mean, the, the Americans established this American University of Afghanistan, which is, I think, one of the best things the U.S. did there. And I, I regret that the U.S. didn't fund 20 more, you know, sprinkling them across the country, making them accessible to people. Because it was, it was, you know, again, it wasn't an engine of Americanization. It was just opportunity. And so the, the, the thirst for higher education was really extraordinary there. It was never, never really met. The, the U.S. tended to put money in primary education, which much of that too was was fraudulent. But so you have all this interesting dynamism. You have, you know, the arts, you have a, a critical space. I mean, I, I call it a public sphere in the classic European sense. You know, the Afghans made of their own. And again, it wasn't Americanization. It wasn't imposed. It was something that Afghans built across generations, but really with a, a firm foundation among youth who wanted, um, importantly, a a multi-ethnic Afghan society. You asked about Pashtuns and that kind of stuff. And a lot of that language in recent years was um, they were aware that the U.S.-backed government was playing ethnic politics and trying to kind of put people in the blocks and mobilize people based on their ethnic identity. And there was a younger cohort of people who said, you know, we are Afghan. And then there's interesting social media stuff where people would say, I am Hazara, but I'm also Tajik, I'm also Uzbek. I mean, it was a way of creating a, a multi-ethnic Afghan national identity that embraced everything. I mean, very utopian, you know, super utopian, right? But symbolically, it was very important that they rejected being mobilized politically, you know, voting as a Hazar or voting as whatever. And of course, there were there were communities who wanted to, you know, vote as that ethnic community. But there are also people who said, you know, let's put a kind of civic nationalism first, one that accommodates ethnic pluralism in a way that rejected a kind of majoritarian politics of, of one ethnic group dominating the thing. So all this stuff was quite interesting. I mean, women were asserting themselves in across you know, multiple spheres. 
of course it remained patriarchal of course there were struggles of course there was violence of course you know there's no utopia um but the door on all that shut in on august 15 so to go back to the, the quote that i wanted to offer from the student um now professor was it you know in trying to make sense of this and you mentioned the tragic arc here um if they the 20 years like she asked you know why did you go to war in our country basically why did you do this to us for 20 years when this was never about us you, know, you never asked us if you wanted to come you never asked us what you wanted to build here you didn't ask us when you were coming and you didn't ask us when when you're leaving you just did this all on your own and we tried to make the most of it and then you pulled the rug out from under us you know at the 11th hour uh, and returned returned to power partly by diplomacy it wasn't a, at the end just a military loss i mean it was a, a series of diplomatic decisions i mean the idea you asked about alternatives i mean giving up bagram i mean holding to the timeline i mean the biden people did not need to hold to the doha agreement that trump had signed i mean every american president writes his or her own foreign policy right so the biden administration acted as if and they tried to convince us that their hands were tied um and that it was either this or 20 more years of war or some absurd kind of you know false um alternative and so but i think that's important for american audiences to hear that you know they're like you came to here to experiment you came here to punish you came here to kind of reassert you know your dominance on the world stage you know to work out the the fear and and hurt of 9-11 that we talked about which was so real you know and palpable um and it's so important for american politics since then like you did, you worked out your problems, you know, on us, on our territory. And now what do we have for it? You know, and then the people who, who had a stake in, in that system, imperfect as it was, have been desperate to leave. And so this, I don't know how much people are aware of this, but, you know, I, I'm a scholar. I work in California. You know, I have friends. I edited a journal on Afghanistan and, you know, but I'm not a politician. I'm not a soldier. But people assume that, you know, Afghans have been desperately trying to reach me and anyone who is kind of on the radar as an American to help get them out. You know, and that, that's the, the kind of like, you know, the symbol of, of voting with your feet, you know, is quite powerful. I mean, they, m- there's a huge swath of society that doesn't want the system and is literally living in terror about it. Naturally, women, you know, I mean, especially women of a certain age, I mean, they they feel like their lives are over. I mean, there is an epidemic of suicide. Um, they feel betrayed and and some people have done some good things in getting people out you know i mean some you know the u.s military vets have been you know at the forefront of working to get out people you know that that they they know they owe but um the u.s government doesn't want these people i mean they have created all these obstacles to to allowing a safety valve for, for people to leave looking forward from a perspective of leadership, how do we avoid these kinds of mistakes? So obviously some interests, some aspects of human nature led to this war. Yeah. How do we resist that in the future? I guess beyond my moral and, and intellectual capacity, I'll just say this, I mean, looking at, again, looking at it from you know, my home ground is the university. And I think of the, the intellectual, um, yeah, you know, ways of ways of thinking that that I think students should develop for themselves as citizens, right? And maybe that's where to start is like you know, historical thinking. I mean, these are all, and I, I try to tell people, you know, if you want to do robotics, computer science, 
you be a doctor or whatever. You should study history. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to be a historian like me. And it's, you know, my job isn't perfect. My profession is deeply flawed, right? But as I get older, I'm like, there are fewer and fewer historians I actually like, you know, want to hang out with and stuff. So it's like, I'm not offering my myself as like a model for anything, but, you know, whether you're a, a, a you know, you carry the mail or you're a brain surgeon, whatever. I mean, I think it's not, it's, it's a way of civic engagement and a way of like, you know, ethical being in the world that we need to familiarize ourselves with. Because in, and if you're an American or if you're from a rich country, you know, you need to be aware of your effect um, on a on an interconnected world. Um, you can't you can't say anymore that you don't know or care what's happening in Afghanistan or really circle the globe and point to a place. I mean, we're all connected and we're all we have ethical obligations. Um, that's one place to start. But I would just say this, though, I, and this is a I'll offer a self critique, and that is um, so much of my teaching and like the themes of my research have been about empire. You know how big states work not only on big territories like. Russian Empire and Soviet Union and stuff, but the way in which power often you know, is projected beyond those boundaries in ways that we don't see. So this is where things like neoliberalism or just, you know, if you want to take capitalism or just things that, I, you know, the idea of humanity or of liberalism or of humanitarianism, ideas that move beyond state boundaries are all things that we think about as affecting power in some ways that, that often harm people, right? So I think part of, as I've, I've seen my job so far is to think about you know, building upon the work of my people in grad school and, you know, scholars that have affected me. I mean, you know, we're all concerned with how power works and its effects and trying to be attuned to understanding things that aren't visible, right, that we should be thinking about, that should be known to us. And as scholars, we can hopefully play some useful role in showing effects that aren't, you know, obvious initially. Um, so empire is a framework to think about this. And so you think about invading foreign countries, Obviously, if you're a scholar of empire, you've seen what what that looks like, and that's horrific, right? You th- you look at things like racism as one of the ideological pillars of empire. You know that's horrific. It must be critiqued. It must be, you know, we must be educated against. Um, some of the you know gender exploitation of empire is also something to highlight, you know, to rectify and so on. Um, you know, to be moral beings, we need to think about past inequality and and the legacies of legacies of violence and destruction that live on. I mean, living in the Americas. I mean, look at, you know, we're all on stolen land. We're all, in the sense, living with the fruits of, of genocide and, and slavery and all those things that are hard to come to terms with, right? But the last few months in Afghanistan and thinking about empire, I think made me more humble when I read people who say, to, to put it simply, have, have taken some joy in this moment, saying like, well, the Americans got kicked out of Afghanistan. You know, if you're against empire, this is a good thing. This is a kind of victory of, of anti-colonial. <laughs> you could see from the perspective of Afghanistan that America is not some kind of place that has an ideal of freedom and all the kind of things that we American tell ourselves. Yeah. But it's more America has the ideal of empire, that there's one place that has the truth and everybody else must follow this truth. And so from a perspective of Afghanistan, it could be a victory against this idea of centralized truth of empire. That's another way to tell this story. Yeah. And then in that sense, it's a victory. And yeah. in, in that sense also, I mean, you push back against this somewhat, this idea of Afghanistan as the graveyard of empires. Right, right. And I'll say this, I'd say, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, I'm a critic of empire. I mean, I, you know, Colonialism is a a political phenomenon that stays with us, and I think you know we need scholars to 
point of the way in which it still works and still does harm. Um, but it's part of being an empire that you can just get up and leave a place, right? That you can remake its politics on one day. And then because it fails to advance your agenda at one moment, you simply walk away. I mean, you know, we can point to other moments. I mean, 1947 on the subcontinent, you know, the way that the British withdrew, um, played a significant role in mass violence, you know, that, that accompanied partition. It wasn't all the actions of the British that, you know, dictated that, right? There were lots of actors who chose to pick up, you know, the knife to, to kill their neighbor and so on. I mean, there's lots of agency in that moment as there is now in what's happening in Afghanistan. But I think the, the capriciousness, I mean, the, the, the ability to act as if you're, you're, your political decisions about other people's lives, you know, are something that can be made, you know, in secret. Um, that can be made willy-nilly. They really are beyond the accountability, you know, of of those who are actually going to live with the consequences of shifting the cards on a deck in a way that decides who rules and, and who doesn't. I would love to hear your conversation with somebody I just talked to, which is Neil Ferguson who argues on the topic of empire that you can also zoom out even farther and say, weigh the good and the bad of empire. And he argues, I think he gets a lot of flack for this from other historians, that like the British empire did more good than bad in uh, certain moments of history. And that's an uncomfortable truth. There's like levels, it's a cake with layers of uncomfortable truths and it's not a cake at all because none of it tastes good. Right. I mean, I, I would continue to disagree with, with Al Ferguson. So I'm still, I'm still working out you know, where I am and, and and what this moment does to kind of, I think, qualify, qualify my understanding of, of the past. And to, I think, in a moment of humility, you know, I, I do, and I'm partly, I'm partly reacting to the kind of, you know, as you put it. I mean, the, the idea that this is like a good thing that American power has been defeated here. I mean, I do think American power should contract, and I, I don't think. And again, if I if I had to create a, a tally sheet of what the Americans did in the U.S., I mean, I mentioned the American University of Afghanistan, right? It could have done that without invading the country and killing people. It could have, you know, I, I'm not, I've not now become an apologist for empire. I'm not, I'm not now a mini now Ferguson. But you know, ending empire is, I mean, it does how you the, those decisions you make are in some ways a, a continuation of imperial hubris, right? Um, so you're not really out of empire yet. You're not really contracting empire for those who are living it, you know? Um, but I think it's also, I mean, maybe I put it this way, it's be careful what you ask for. You know, I mean, I, I wanted I wanted the U.S. out of Afghanistan, um, but I wanted there to be a political settlement. I wanted, you know, I wanted my cake and I wanted to eat it too, right? I wanted all kinds of things to be different, right? But why is going to Afghanistan even needed for that? You can play all those games of geopolitics without ever invading and taking ownership of the place. It, it feels like the war. Yeah. If, I mean, if, if it feels like, I mean, I'm not exactly sure what military force is necessary for, except yeah. for targeted intense attacks. It feels like to me, the right thing to do after 9-11 was to show, was a display of force unlike anything the world has ever seen for a very short amount of time. Targeted at, sure, a terrorist at certain strongholds and so on. Yeah. And then in and out, and then focus on education, 
on uh, empowering women to, uh, to into the education system, all those kinds of things that have to do with supporting the culture, the education, the flourishing of the place. That yeah. has nothing to do with m- military policing, essentially. Right. No, I mean, I think, yeah, if you look at it through that lens, I mean, invading Afghanistan and then invading Iraq didn't end Al-Qaeda. It didn't end terrorism, right? It didn't really deflate these ideologies entirely. Um, there were, if you like, you could say there were, you know, some limited discrediting of certain kinds of ideas. Um, but in fact, I mean, look at the phenomenon of suicide bombing. bombing. Um, I mean, it spread. I mean, it was never an Islamic thing. It was never, you know, a Muslim thing. Um, some Muslims adopted it in some places, but you know, the circuits of knowledge about how to do these kind of things only expanded um, with the insurgencies that emerged in Afghanistan and Iraq, and then they kind of became connected. And then they became to the president. I mean, the Islamic State is its the best thing that happened to the Taliban ever because it's on the basis of its supposed new stance as a counterterrorism outfit that it will get recognition from all its neighbors. It will get recognition from Russia. I mean, already with the evacuation of the airport, the United States was collaborating with the Taliban against against Islamic State and openly talking about the Taliban as if they were partners in the security operation. So, and then Al-Qaeda remains present in Afghanistan. So, Trillions of dollars yeah. spent. Yeah. The drones up above bombing places that result in civilian death, the death of children, the death of fathers and mothers. And those stories, even at the individual level, propagate virally across the land, creating potentially more terrorists. And a cynical view of the trillions of dollars is the military industrial complex, where there's just a momentum, where after 9-11, the feeling like we should do something led to us doing something and then a lot of people realizing they can make money from doing more of that something and then it's just a momentum where no one person is sitting there petting a cat in an evil way saying we're going to spend all of this money and create more suffering and create more terrorism but it's just something about that momentum that leads to that and it to me honestly i just i'm still a sucker i believe in leadership I, i believe in great charismatic leaders mm. and the power of that one to do evil and to do good yeah and it felt like i honestly put the blame on george bush obama trump and biden sure for the lack of leadership yeah in this. definitely definitely i agree and yeah there is the military industrial complex component which is huge I and mean, there's also i mean speaking of government leadership it's also I'd say the the imbalance of power within Washington. I mean, the Pentagon used this moment, um, well, beginning in 2001, I think, to assert its authority at the expense of other institutions of national government. Yeah. I mean, the State Department diplomacy, you know, has become a shadow of what it was once capable of doing. And of course, I mean, other historians, U.S. historians, you know, which I'm not formally a historian of the United States, but you know, we can go back to talk about Vietnam. We talk about lots of um, Cold War and post-Cold War engagements. Um, and I think, you know, we need a reckoning about how the United States uses military power. You know, why we devote so much to our military budget and what could be available to us if we had a more sensible view of the value of military power, of its effectiveness, 
And I think we really need to hammer home that this is a defeat. I mean, I think there should be accountability. And if you, and this could be a kind of opening for a kind of bipartisan conversation, because if you are a kind of um, American militarist, I mean, you have to look at the leadership that got you to a place where you were defeated by men wearing sandals, firing AK 47s, right? Yeah, there should be a humility with that. Like yeah. the, the, I mean, yeah. we should actually say that. We like literally the and we um, lost you say you say lost. we lost it wasn't just you know um it's, it's the, the the american military yeah. lost yeah and i and i and i feel i have very mixed feelings and you know it's i don't know a ton of veterans but you know i've mentioned i've taught my share and um have a student now and you know they are they're suffering because they look at the sacrifices that they made that i didn't make i mean american society to make the sacrifices i mean men and women lost limbs they lost eyes they lost lives you know uh there's been this, of course, quiet epidemic of suicide among among veterans, and I I've heard some stories. The fact that the State Department is seeing a similar surge of suicides because they see their adult life's work collapse. They've seen their relationships. I mean, they've seen they received phone calls in the middle of the night from people who they entrusted with their lives, who they know are going to be targeted. I mean, some have already been killed. Um, they've seen the. I, I mean, I think just. I'd imagine just ideologically and professionally what they believed in and what they, what they sacrificed for, you know, has vanished. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's, that's bad. I mean, historically thinking of some of the presence you were thinking of, I mean, if you think of, you know, first of all, you know, at a human level, I feel horrible for those people who, you know, may not have agreed with everything they had done and their choices in life. But I respect the fact that many good people went out of, you know, the best intentions as young people to, to to do the right thing and make things right. And I respect that. And I've met enough to know that there were people who saw the gray and complexity and that that's, you know, all you can hope for. Um, but we don't want a generation of disillusioned veterans. Um, you know, if we look at the other post-war moments, and this is kind of a post-war moment where, you know, I think we need a conversation with American veterans about about what they've gone through and what they're feeling and they have they, they still have skin in the game you know because their personal connections and their and of their histories and they're also going to be future leaders i mean uh yeah veterans already yeah people yeah. who have served are often great men and women that's that's true and yeah. you know throughout history whether you sacrifice you served in fighting world war ii in fighting vietnam that's going to mold you in different ways that those, yeah. that's going to mold how you are as a leader that leads this country forward. And uh, so we have to have an honest conversation about um, what was um, the role of the war in Afghanistan, the war in the Middle East, the war yeah. on terror in the history of America. If we just look at the yeah. full context, at the end of this 21st century, how we're going to remember this and how that's going yeah. to result in our future interactions with small and large countries with China or some yeah. proxy war with China, yeah. with Russia or some proxy war with uh, Russia. What's the role of oil and natural resources and opium and all those kinds of yeah. things? What's the role of military power yeah. uh, in the world? And now with COVID, you know, it it's like, um, it's almost like the because of the many failures of the US government uh, and many leaders, uh, 
in in science and politics to respond effectively and quickly to uh, to COVID, we kind of forget that the, we fumbled this other thing too. Yeah, and it's it's hard to know which is going to be more expensive. Yeah, uh, but yeah. They they seem to be symptoms of something of a, of a same kind of source problem um, of leadership, of bureaucracy, of of uh, the way information and intelligence flows throughout the US government, yeah. all those kinds of things. Yeah. And that hopefully motivates young leaders to fix things. Right. Definitely, I mean, I think if, if there's one theme that, that jumps out to me in thinking about this moment, I mean, if we recognize that we live in a, a kind of crisis of democracy um, in the United States and in other countries that have long been proud of their democratic traditions, if we see them being under assault from certain quarters, I think, Military defeat is yet another addition to all the the aspects of this that you mentioned. I mean, the fact of military defeat is a giant match that you're throwing on this fire, potentially, if we think of its legacies and other post-war environments when, you know, the veteran angle, you know, is, is one when you have people who feel betrayed. I mean, they have been fodder for the far right in other settings. I mean, interwar Europe is very much about mobilizing disillusioned veterans uh, in the name of right-wing fascist politics. Um, if one thinks too of this moment of really increasing xenophobia, you know, our immigration debate is now talking about whether or not Afghans should be permitted at all in the United States, you know, after 20 years. And I think immediately the response in Europe, which I followed to some extent, you know, focusing on Germany, uh, because it, it was really ramping up deportations of Afghans leading up to this collapse. And now they have been, you know, a lot of right-wing center-right politicians in, in, in Germany have w- been watching all this with an eye to I think, using it to their advantage for a, a domestic German audience to say, you know, in the context of ele- recent elections that, you know, we're the party who will defend you against these Afghans who are going to be coming from this. So, you know, what I've tried to emphasize in talking to different groups about this moment is that it won't be confined to Afghanistan or even the region. I mean, obviously, malnutrition, hunger will send Afghans to neighboring states. But where the European right is resurgent, this has been a gift, right? To say that the Africans are coming, they're brown-skinned, they're Muslim, they're uneducated, they're going to want your women. Um, and they will take, you know, the odd sexual assault case or the odd whatever um, dramatic act of violence that, you know, happens numerically in any population. And they will magnify that to say that, you know, our far-right group is going to save the nation. And, and sorry, the, the main point I wanted to... to Speaking of leadership, was that I think the serial well, there, there were many, many um, carnal sins, if you like. But if you go back to our analogy of all the exits, I mean, what blocked some of those exits was um, an absence of truth and transparency, yeah. and the lying. And so, I mean, the the this is no secret anyone who's followed this, but the we've allowed. And you think of the, that's the general mistrust of government, mistrust of of authoritative of authority across the board. Of professors, of economists, of scientists, scientists, uh, doctor, doctors, right? Well, I actually um, think that's the hopeful thing to me about the internet. Yeah, is uh, the internet hates inauthenticity. They can smell bullshit much mm. better, and I think mm. that motivates young leaders to be transparent and authentic. Okay. So, like the the, so. the very so. the very problems yeah. we've been yeah. seeing, this kind of attitude of like um, of authority, where oh, the populace 
they're too busy with their own lies. They're not smart enough to understand the full complexities of the things yeah. we're dealing with. Yeah. So we're not going to even communicate to them the full complexities. Yeah. We're just going to decide and then tell them what we decided and conceive some kind of narrative that that um, makes it easy for them to consume this decision. Right. right. Uh, as opposed to that, I have. I really believe I see there's a hunger for authenticity of of uh, when you're making decisions, when you're looking at the rest of the world and trying to decide, uh, untangle this complexity, yeah. the internet, the public, the world wants to see you as a leader struggle with the tension of these ideas, to uh, change your mind, to see, yeah. you know, to recognize your own flaws and your own thinking from a month ago, all that, yeah. the yeah. full complexity of it, also yeah. acknowledge the uncertainty yeah. as with COVID, also with the wars, you know, uh, yeah. I think there's a hunger for that. And I think yeah. that's just going to change the nature of leadership uh, in the yeah. 21st century. I hope so. I think, you know, all the things you highlighted, I mean, accountability is part of that, right? I mean, we need, you know, you know honesty, openness, uh, and then, you know, acknowledgement of mistakes. I mean, humility is the key to all learning, right? But also, I mean, if you think just the headline from yesterday, the the horrible drone strike, which was really the last kind of American military action on the day that the U.S. was, I think, mostly departing from Kabul, wiped out an entire family, mostly children. You know, the U.S. acknowledged that, yes, this was not the ISIS bombing outfit that they thought it was. But yesterday, the they did a quick review. Um, I'm not an expert on, on drone strikes in their aftermath, but those who looked at it more closely said it was basically um, whole cloth taken from what the U.S. government has been saying after all these strikes, you know, reproducing the same language and basically pointing to technical errors, but denying that there were any procedural mistakes or flaws, or it was just kind of, yeah, they found little ways of, of acknowledging things not go as planned, but, you know, we follow policies essentially, and you know, that's it. It's not a crime. It's a way of not even saying, you know, we screwed up. And it's, it's, it's kind of the, the legalese that, that, suddenly makes a war crime not a war crime, you know? And that that is reflects, I think, a refusal to, to take accountability. I think people are really sick of that yeah. in a way where the opposite is true, which yeah. is they get excited for people who are not, for leaders who are not that. Right. And so there's they're not going to punish you for saying, I made a mistake. Yeah, yeah. That I, I, so I yeah. just had a conversation with Francis Collins, the director of the NIH, and part of my criticism towards Anthony Fauci has been that um, it's like such subtle, but such crucial communication of mistakes made. Mm. If you make a small mistake, it is so powerful to communicate, I think we messed up. We thought this was true. Yeah. And it wasn't. So the the obvious thing there was with masks early in the pandemic. Right. Uh, there's so much uncertainty. It's so understandable to make mistakes or yeah. to, to to also be concerned about what kind of hysteria different statements you make lead to. Just being transparent about that and saying we were not correct in saying the thing we said before. That's so powerful yeah. to communicate, to uh, gain trust. And yeah. the opposite is true. When you do this legalese type of talk, yeah, yeah, it's it uh, destroys trust. And I, yeah. I again, I, I really think the lessons of recent history, yeah, teach us what it, what 
how to be a leader and mm. teach young leaders how to be leaders. And I, so I have, I have a lot of hope. Yeah, good. Partially good. thanks for the internet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great, yeah. No, humility, I mean, we, you know, we need humility, accountability, honesty. Um, and yeah, studying the past is an important way to do that. I mean, to, to yes. learn from past mistakes and obviously there's always inspiration and courage and, you know, we can take some kind of sustenance from that too. But, um, but also learning from, learning how not to do things, right? And then, you know, analogies are never like one-to-one. I mean, we talk about Vietnam. I mean, I think mm-hmm. many Vietnam veterans would say, you know, this is like deja vu. You know, I mean, there's the story, the the, the visuals of the Kabul airport and of of the Saigon embassy were not the same, but close enough that people would juxtapose them. All that's right now, but I would just ask people that, you know, you know, over-analogizing is also, you know, a kind of path down, making errors of judgment and, and comparison and then sameness. Um but it's stretch. I mean, I think like 9-11 itself, I think the idea that um, people lack the imagination within our security apparatus to think this is even possible, right? And you think of the simplicity of having a $10 lock on a cockpit door, you know, could have wanted all this. And you know, again, I'm not saying either the time or in hindsight that I am omniscient about all this, but, you know, I had just been living in Germany the year before and there was a plot there that this guy was hatching from Germany to blow up the mausoleum of Atatürk in Ankara with an airplane. And so if you kind of dig, you know, it wasn't unimaginable that you would use an airplane as a weapon. And the, the Bush administration kept saying, no one had ever heard of this. Who would do this? I'm like, well, not a lot of people do this. And then, you know, at that very moment, my wife was teaching the Joseph Conrad novel, Secret Agent, which was about a conspiratorial organization that wanted to bomb, actually, in retrospect, it was kind of suicide bombing because they, they tricked this guy into doing it, but they wanted to bomb the Greenwich Observatory for some obscure political purpose. Um, so that's an instance in which, you know, the novel, right, to go back to our kind of humanities pitch, right, that makes my point was that, um, you know, as you mentioned, we need humanity, transparency, but also imagination, right? And I think part of expanding our imagination is by you know, I mean, obviously delving into your fields, you know, of engineering and the sciences and robotics and artificial intelligence and all that rich landscape. And then, but also we find this in film, poetry, literature. I mean, just the kind of stretching that that we need to do to really educate ourselves more fully, right? Across the across the spectrum of everything humans need to imagine, to reimagine security. You know, so much of what we talked about today, I mean, so much of, you know, our security is affected by others' perception of their insecurity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which unleashes a whole web of, of emotions. Can you tell me about the Afghan people, uh, what they love, what they fear, what they dream of for themselves and for their nation? Is there something to say, to speak to, to the spirit of the people that may humanize them and maybe speak to the concerns and the hopes they have? Yeah, I think I, you know, as an outsider, I hesitate to to make any grand statement, but I would say, listen, I mean, the, um, there are a number of documentary films that, that are incredibly rich that will offer your listeners and viewers a snapshot. So there is um, Afghan Star, you know, which really brings you to the homes of a set of people who, you know, they want stardom, they're artists, they want to express themselves, some want to push political boundaries, cultural boundaries. There's a woman who gets into hot water for dancing. But, you know, you realize that, I mean, 
people, I mean, they, they love art. They love music. They love poetry. They love expression. You know, people want to care for their children. They want safety of their families. They want to enjoy what everyone enjoys, you know? Um, I think it's a very humanizing portrait. Um, there's another great documentary film called um, um, Love Crimes of Kabul, which is a great snapshot of of the post-2000 world that the Americans shaped in a lot of ways. And it's about a women's prison. And it's incredibly revealing because it's about young girls and, and what they want. Um, well, not, not not just young, but young, teenage, and then some middle-aged people who who are accused of moral crimes, ranging from homicide, which one woman admits to, to having sexual relations outside of marriage. Mm-hmm. And so it shows, in a way, continuity with the previous Taliban regime and that women are imprisoned for things that you wouldn't be imprisoned for elsewhere and that Islamic law operates as the the kind of judicial logic for these um, for these punishments. But in letting these women kind of speak for themselves, I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, they I don't want to give too much away, but women make ranging choices in this film that land them in this predicament. So they don't all profess innocence. Some are like, I'm guilty, but they're guilty for reasons... In one case, one woman is guilty. She's in prison because it's a way to exert pressure on her fiance to finally marry her. You know, <laughs> yeah. so you get ethnicity. You get like you know, kind of Romeo and Juliet things where their families don't like each other necessarily, but they find each other. You have questions of like love, money, clothing, furniture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's beautiful. And like I mean, the, the parts with it. I remember showing it in class. There was a, a wonderful Afghan student who was a. I think a Fulbright at the ed school at Stanford, and she's a genius. She's amazing. Um, you know, it was awkward for her because talking about young women having sex and stuff, and it was just it wasn't, you know, the snapshot of Afghanistan that she wanted. And obviously, there's so much more. They're great writers and you know musicians, and I mean, you know, music is a huge thing. I mean, poetry, all those things are, are great. Um, so she found it. You know, I hear you. I mean, it's it's a kind of a taboo subject, but I thought the American students seeing it really identified with these women because they're just so real. And so, you know, young people trying to find like, I mean, relationships that are universal um, and circumstances that are very difficult. Um, Love, love is universal. Yeah, yeah. so it's, I mean, we do have resources to humanize. I mean, you know, know, some of your people will know Khalid Husseini, you know, he's African-American, he's done his stuff, but there are, there are a number of of novelists and short story writers who who do cool things. I think that, Another tragic aspect of this moment is that those people have now pretty much had to leave the country. So um, there's a visual artist I would highlight for you named um, Khadam Ali, um, who's a Hazara based in Australia, who does extraordinary work in blending a tradition of Persian miniatures with contemporary uh, political commentary. Um, his work is between Australia and Afghanistan, but he he also he had to flee. I mean, he was doing some work in Kabul, but it's a extraordinary um kind of visual language that he's adapted that has been shown all over the planet now I mean, he's got some of his work is in new york galleries is in europe um he's been shown in australia but he, he talks about migration in a way that puts afghans and hazaras at the center but it's totally universal about um you know our modern crisis of of all the means people who are displaced across our planet and he attempts to kind of speak for some size of them in a way that like I think everyone can get. Um, I mean, the visual imagery experts will know that it, it's from you know like the the Shahnameh, like an ancient Persian you know epic that Iranians were attached to, that Afghans are attached to, that 
people can quote, you know, at, at length. Um, that has mythical figures of good and evil that kids grow up embodying. They're named the names of the characters that are. Um, it's called you know the Book of Kings. Uh, the heroes and villains are the staple of conversation and 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 poetry. And you know, like Russians, I mean, the kind of the 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 resort to literary references and speak is, is something that you know Americans don't do. Most mm-hmm. West European countries don't do. But the fact that everyone's got to know this character, everyone knows this reference, the wordplay, the linguistic finesse um, in multiple languages is you know a major value of Afghan storytelling. Um, as an outsider, I'm scratching at the surface of the surface. Yeah, but know. there's a depth to it. Just like it, it yeah. is fascinating. With the layers, yeah, with the, the yeah. layers of Russian language that's. Exactly. The the culture, it's a, I've, I've been struggling, and this is kind of the journey I'm embarking on yeah. to convey to an American audience uh, what is lost in translation yeah, yeah. between great. Russian and That's English. Great. Great. And it's it's very challenging. And some of the great translators of Dostoevsky, of Tolstoy, of Russian literature struggle with this deeply and they, yeah. they work. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a it's an art form just to convey that. And right. it's, it's amazing to hear that Afghanistan with a full mix of cultures that are there have the same kind of uh, wit and humor and depth of intellect. I mean, the humor thing is that, that's, you know, I'm so much our visual imagery is about like this sad place and dour or whatever, but the, I mean, socially, again, I'm going to engage in some stereotypes about generalization stuff, but just the, um, you know, the Afghan friends that I've come to be close with and really love. I mean, the the humor, there's so much there of common common stuff of like, when I go to Ireland, it's one of my favorite places. And just like the, I feel a sense of pressure, like the humor all around me all the time. I, mean, I feel like there's something between Ireland, like Ireland and Russia with the humor stuff, where it's like, you've you got to be on your game if you yeah. want to be, you know, so it's, yeah, it's not, I, I feel yeah, like you know what I mean? the, a, the intensity yeah. of conversation. <laughs> yeah. In terms of yeah, you have to be on your game in terms of wit and so on. I mean, you have to. There, there's certain people I have like when I talk on this podcast, they're like that. Uh, certain people from the Jewish tradition have that totally, like where totally. the wit yeah, yeah. is just like, yep. okay, I have to. Okay, I yeah. really have to pay attention. Yeah, we, like, yeah. it's a game. Totally. It's like yeah. it's it's like uh, you know what it feels like. It feels like speed chess or something like that, and you really have yeah, to. Yeah. Uh, focus yeah. and play, and at the same time, there's yeah. body language and the, and then there's a melancholy nature to it, at least in the Russian side. Yeah. And the whole yeah. thing is just a beautiful mess. I mean, th- yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a funny TikTok video that went around that that I got from like some Afghan acquaintances. That was a, he's an Irish comedian, kind of highlighting you know, kind of Irish and and German national stereotypes around hospitality. And um, this Afghan woman said, you know, I didn't know that the Irish were just white Afghans. Because the whole like you know the hospitality like politics of like of refusal you know you you know you don't you don't take something that's offered to you the first time you don't you know, I mean it's the the culture of um of receiving a guest you know that's you know Americans aren't I mean that's not you know that, that's yeah. not always I mean they're different the regional cultures where that's the thing there's whatever but it's I mean the the kind of like generosity and the kind of you know that that's that's real I mean that's and that's a cool thing. And that's amazing. That's, um, you know, the food, I mean, going on with just the superficial things, but, but the, but all that, the, the warmth of hospitality and, um, of wit and, and humanity. I mean, it's that, that, that's what we don't see viewing the place just through war and geopolitics and the moving pieces of the map and stuff. And that's, and that's hard to see when, you know, there are gaps in, in, in language and in, in religious tradition and, and all that stuff. And then, you know, being open to the fact that people do do things differently. 
you know, and, and it's uh, and the gender dimension there is important, right? That they're they're kind of, you know, arguably each culture has a kind of gen- gender dynamic that's different, and so I think it's helpful to have humility in thinking that some Afghans will do something something different differently, you know. Mm-hmm. But then you'll also have Afghans who say every woman should be educated, every woman should work, and so on and so on. So there's yeah. no there's, there's no single way of yeah yeah. And, and there is a gender dynamic in Russia too. They, we need to be respectful of that. Like, uh, totally. it's, it's, and that's not that's not always what it looks like at first. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, exactly. Like, there's layers like where power is. I mean, that's definitely. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. That's a whole nother conversation yeah, yeah, is. where the it power is. is. Yeah, uh, Rumi, the 13th century Persian poet who was born in the land that is now Afghanistan. Is there something in his words that speaks to you about the spirit of the Afghan people? I mean, everyone owns Rumi, I guess I'd say. I mean, that, that's going to get me in trouble with certain Afghan fans of Rumi who want to see him as as an Afghan. I would say... Are they proud uh, of Rumi? Yeah, Do yeah, they yeah, see him yeah. as an Afghan? Do they... Yeah, I mean, so it, it, again, it depends. I mean, some, some people will be militant and say... You know, the Iranians can have him. He's ours. Um, but they're also say, you know, he's, I mean, you could say, I mean, again, he's like a Rorschach blot. I mean, he's he's a Sufi. He's a Muslim. He's a Central Asian. Mm-hmm. He's Iranian. He's Afghan. He's a Turk. I'm trying to think of the analogy, but he's he's something special to everyone. So I guess I would I would not walk into that conversation and claim that he's <laughs> one or another, but, it, but it's a cool thing. I mean, it's the, um, but I'm glad you brought that up because that's a good way of seeing a, seeing something that, that Afghans, I mean, for, for, we live in our country in Afghanistan and say, okay, Rumi's everyone, you know, Madonna helped make him famous in the United States, you know, for better, for worse. Mm-hmm. They used to sell stuff at Starbucks and that's all complicated um, and embarrassing. And his, his his translations are very much disputed where you have people be like, there's some awful Rumi translations and there are, yeah. there are also a lot of, speaking of the internet, there are lots of uh, fake Rumi quotes. Yes. You know, like Rumi said, always be your best. Like, yeah. uh, we didn't say that. that you know that was you know i mean that's kind of silly stuff like that but yeah but no, the cool thing is like the um i mean i think you can read rumi as a religious thinker but you can also you know read rumi as a um you know in an islamic sense but you can also read him as a kind of spiritualist right as someone who or, or an ethicist or moralist and so i think that's I, I like the the lens of rumi as a, a gateway to afghan um ecumenicism and, and cosmopolitanism you know the, the theme i keep emphasizing of of meeting actual Afghans who are actually, you know, fluent in Russian, fluent in German, fluent in Turkish. They know Dari, they know Pashto. Um, they've gone to university or sometimes they haven't. And yet, I mean, they are, um, I like the category of the uh, popular intellectual, you know, the intellectual who isn't, isn't formally educated necessarily. Although of course that's represented too, especially increasingly now with this generation of going to university all over the world, you know, Stanford, MIT, everywhere. Um, Afghans are war represented there, but just being, I don't know, having kind of worldly knowledge that is not limited to a province, to a village, to a hamlet, but sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not uh, because of, again, not because of some fairy tale story of curiosity wandering the globe out of, you know, some sense of, of privilege, but out of necessity, out of survival of, of having to adapt. And it's really, um, extraordinary that i mean also let me think about like professions of like you know ask ask an afghan you know what does he or she do for a living and what have they done in the past i mean the answer is one gets shoe salesmen task cab drivers uh surgeons all in one guy 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, sounds, that, I mean, that's not just Afghan, but yeah. that's you know that that's very common. But it's also Russia's the same. That's right. I think it's right. whenever there's complexities to the economic system and the, that's right. A short term right. and the long term history of how the country right. develops, right. and it's basically the people figuring out their way around a mess of a country politically, yeah, but a uh, beautiful, flourishing culture and a yeah. humanity. Yeah. And that, that creates super interesting people. Yeah, uh, yeah. So we can often see, okay, there's Taliban, there's war, there's yeah. uh, economic malfunction, there's harboring of terrorists, there's opium trade, all that kind of stuff. But there's yeah. humans there with deep yeah. intellectual right. lives. Uh, and uh, like, I, I love the movie Love Crimes. And the same kind of... Uh, hopes, fears, and desire to love the the old Romeo and Juliet story. And right. I think Rumi to me represents that. Hmm. The wit, the intelligence, but also the just eloquent and just beautiful representation of humanity, of love. Some of the right. Some of the best quotes about love are from him. Mm. Half mm. of them fake, right. half, <laughs> right. half of them right. real. But the best uh, ones are real. Right? The best yeah. ones are real. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the best ones are real. Uh, Robert, this was an incredible yeah. conversation. Oh, thank you for having me. Th thank you for Thanks the great. tour of Afghanistan and making me making us realize that um, there's much more to this country than um, what we may think. It's a it's a beautiful country and it's full of beautiful people. You made me think about a lot of new things too. So it was definitely, <laughs> definitely great on my end too. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Robert Cruz. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now let me leave you with some words from Winston Churchill. History will be kind to me for I intend to write it. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.